Which major leaguers are adopting the fly ball revolution in Major League Baseball? And which ones aren't? I'll ask Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 24th. It's show number 23 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs, discussing batters who have joined the flyball revolution and left it, about fab budgeting, top barrelers, his boons and banes, and more. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports from the National League. Harold Nichols discusses Charlie Blackman's injury scare, more injuries for the Mets, some bullpen angst in Colorado and Philadelphia, and other items from the National League. And from the American League, Jock Thompson will tell us about injuries to Andrelton Simmons, Willie Calhoun, and Colin McHugh, as well as a few returnees from the IL and other American League goings-on. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about hitters who have over- and underperformed their preseason expectations so far. And as always, we'll have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Colorado relief pitcher Jairo Diaz. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at the Sunday marquee matchup with San Diego sensation Chris Paddock in Toronto to face veteran ground baller Marcus Stroman, as well as other matchups from the coming weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the new wave of prospecting. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It certainly has, and it's been another crazy year of baseball. And that's the most exciting thing, is that every single year brings us something new. How many leagues are you playing in this year, Mike, and how are they doing? Six leagues. I think this might be either my record or tied for my record. Unlike a lot of other people in the industry, I cannot possibly play in like 15 leagues because I, I can't keep up. And what's going to happen is after three weeks, I'm probably going to stop caring about half those leagues. So rather than start in 15 leagues and stop caring about half of them, I just start in half of those leagues so I could actually pay attention and care because it's just really not fair to your league mates when you just stop paying attention to your team. So for these six leagues, uh, it's a mixed bag. One of them, uh, my AL only keeper league, I'm running away with the league. But again, it's only a month and a half, so I'm not going to count my money just yet. Uh, the other leagues uh, kind of mixed, and then one is head-to-head, so it really doesn't matter until the playoffs anyway. The keeper league, is that like a home league with your friends, or is it an experts league? Yes, but there are some experts in there. It's actually Rob Leibowitz, so I'm... <laughs> I'm facing him in two leagues because he's in our tout league as well. And then Seth Trachtman, who was also in our AL tout league, but no longer is, he's in the league as well. Yeah, I just talked to Rob uh, last week, as a matter of fact, for the show. So uh, he he didn't mention that you were in the league. Maybe it's because you're running away with it and he didn't want to. Probably he didn't want to remember that. (laughs) 
when you look around at the, this year's major league environment, how do you think it's affecting the fantasy environment, the trends and things like that? Well, basically, if one of your hitters is not on a 30 home run pace, he's probably not helping you. And then, of course, the other thing is that if your starting pitcher isn't striking out 25% of batters, he's probably not helping you. So, I mean, things have really just tilted toward home runs and strikeouts. It's one thing to know that kind of thing coming into a season if you had some kind of way of predicting it or if it was a continuation of a, of a years-long trend. You can start making adjustments. But this year, after the da- relative down year for home runs in 2018, I think everybody recalibrated and kind of went back to business as usual. And then we have this huge eruption of home runs again, and the strikeout totals continue to climb. So it has caught a lot of us a little bit off guard, especially the home run part of the equation. But what do you do about it? It's really the guys who are hitting 10 to 15 home runs. Obviously, those 10 to 15 home runs are not going to be worth as much. But if everybody's hitting more home runs, then you assume that that means that the guys on your team are also hitting more home runs. If they're not, then that's a problem. Uh, Also, the side effect of more home runs is, uh, although I haven't calculated it, I assume stolen bases are once again down. And so the stolen base guys are worth more. However, if those stolen base guys are named D. Gordon and Billy Hamilton that come with no power, the value increase that they get from their stolen bases are basically offset by the fact that now their one or two home runs are worth even less. Or let's actually say they hurt you even more than they did previously. So I don't think that their stolen base value is really increasing their value. It's basically neutral because then their lack of home runs are hurting you even more. Yeah, sometimes I like to think of it, Mike, as like you're looking for a certain level of production from each slot. And uh, I, I know that some people look at it this way. If you can get Joey Gallo and D. Gordon and consider them as two guys sharing two slots and average out the two of them between it, you're going to get pretty good production in the aggregate if you know one guy hits 50 home runs and the other guy steals 50 bases versus zero and zero on the other side of the equation. You're actually doing okay because you're averaging the 25 stolen bases, 25 home runs from two spots. But then that raises the question of how much are you paying for it and all that kind of thing as well. So it's sometimes not as easy as doing uh, something as simple as averaging two slots or three slots or whatever your plan is. Right. I mean, this goes back to draft strategy, and people always talk about, like, oh, what was your first-round, second-round combo? Oh, I'm getting, you know, 40 home runs and 40 steals. I I don't look at it that way. I'm just looking for overall production, and as long as your team totals reach the minimum marks that you need for, let's say, a third-place finish in each category, then you're fine, whether it comes from a combo of Joey Gallo and D. Gordon or if you get it from a bunch of 30 home run guys and a bunch of 10 stolen base guys. To me, it doesn't matter. In aggregate, though, if you told me before the season I could get 14 hitters who were all going to get me exactly like one-fourteenth of what I needed in home runs and stolen bases, I think I'd prefer it because the risk would be less. Yes, however, the issue is that if one of those guys gets injured, now you need to replace power and speed, whereas if a, a, a guy who only provides one thing, let's call it a Trey Mancini, then you know, okay, now I have to replace his power. I don't have to worry about stolen bases because my stolen bases are fine. So you're getting a hit in two categories when you have all-balanced guys, whereas maybe just one category if you have specialists. And now that's not, that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just different. 
Well, a lot of leagues, of course, you can try to correct the imbalances by trading, but a lot of leagues, either it's difficult to make deals for various reasons. Some leagues, uh, like the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, the NFBC leagues, don't allow trading for obvious reasons. So uh, the only thing that's left for us to do is to dig into the free agent pool. And uh, most podcasts and most analysis that we read and hear when we're trying to find out information is based on mixed leagues because that's what most guys play and I understand that. It's a whole different kettle of fish though, isn't it, in these only leagues that you and I play in in Tout Wars? Oh, absolutely. And uh, injuries can be an absolute killer in those leagues and the free agent pool is barren. So you basically throw up your hands and you say, what do you do? Even if you seek out a trade, you still have to give up something of value, and then you're just going to create a hole when you trade for what you're trying to replace, unless you somehow end up having depth and you have some guy that's coming back from injury or some guy on your bench that you can just plug in. But usually we don't have that, and, and so you're either creating a hole to cover another hole, or you just have to bide your time until your injured guy comes back. As we speak, Mike, you've spent, I think, barely $30 out of your $1,000 fab budget, and we've been in this league together a few years. You always seem to hold your fab, uh, presumably waiting for some kind of big crossover impact player to come over from the National League, which is one of the ways, one of the few ways that uh, playing single league format offers an advantage over mixed. But at the same time, you're an analytical guy, and I'm wondering what's the evidence to support a hoarding strategy over a spend early approach? What I find interesting is that the assumption that I've only spent 30 is because I've strategically decided to hoard my money for the trade deadline and the crossover player. And that's actually not the case. That never is my strategy. It just so happens to have worked out that way. So my issues have been that typically I don't find that guys that appear in the free agent pool each week are really worth a, a big bid for me. Either the guy I expect to only have a job for a week or two because they're replacing an injured guy who's coming back, uh, or they're a guy that I don't particularly have a need for because I already have guys ahead of them in my lineup that are better, and the only reason to bid on them is to prevent another owner from winning them and then just providing me with depth. So it, it really comes down to that. And like... Off the top of my head, I really only can think of one guy that was plucked from free agency that has been a real difference maker, and that's Michael Chavis. And if you recall, when he was promoted, the Red Sox said he wasn't going to play second base. So I thought, okay, he's not going to play second base. He has no position. He probably isn't going to play much. He's probably going to be sent back down within a week. I'm not going to put an aggressive bid on him because the Red Sox say he's not going to play second base. So what happened? He's now their starting second baseman. So at the time, to me, he didn't seem worthy of an aggressive bid. He went for, I believe, a couple of hundred, which is not something I was going to bid on. And, you know, the, whoever bought him lucked out and that he did play second base, and he hit, and he's probably going to keep the job for the rest of the season. But other than him, it's been a bunch of guys who were called up, big bid, and they were sent back down two weeks later. Uh, one of those guys I was uh, annoyed for not winning was Nate Lowe. I really do like Nate Lowe, but we weren't sure how long he was going to be up for. I wasn't aggressive enough. Somebody else bid high hundreds, I believe, and won him. Uh, he was sent down a week ago. So there really just hasn't been any good opportunities in my mind to be worth spending money on. 
Yeah, the Nate Lowe thing was a real, whoever picked him up, I don't remember, uh, but uh, it's a real blow when you spend a fairly sizable chunk of your fab and you get a week's worth of stats and not that great of a week's worth of stats either. But that's the risk sometimes you have to take in these single-league formats because you just don't know if somebody better is ever going to come along. Although it seems that lately, if, if I had to say anything that has struck me this year that's been different than previous years, is that teams are seemingly more aggressive about bringing up their young players early. You can leave Vladimir Guerrero out of it. The Jays were in a particular playing time situation that they wanted to try to steal an extra year. But, uh, you know, the year started with Eloy Jimenez getting signed and started right away, and uh, a couple of other teams did the same thing. Brandon Lau, I think, uh, got an extension right away in Tampa. These kind of things are happening more and more, and I, I wonder if, you know, good teams are doing that, whether it's going to change how we need to look at the prospects of prospects coming up and being impact players changing with the changing times in uh, baseball's economy. Yeah, I agree. It does seem like that some top prospects you wouldn't expect to get the call until September. They're coming up much earlier. And again, you never know. Uh, are they a two-week slump away from just being optioned right back down? Or are they going to be given a long leash? And even if they start off with a couple of bad weeks, they're still going to be given the chance to keep the job all year. We just don't know. So it's a huge risk when you plump uh, you know, 200 of your fab, fab dollars on these guys who, who you really don't know what the playing time situation is going to be. I think that was the question of the tout table. Uh, every week they put up uh, to ask all the tout wars experts to respond to a particular question. And this week's was talking about guys like Keston Hayura in Milwaukee and uh, Oscar Mercado, the guy in Cleveland and uh, those other kind of prospects recently called up and who have been sus- the subjects of some pretty big fab bidding in tout wars. And the question was, you know, why did you take the guys you took or what do you think of the guys who have been taken with those kind of prices? And one of the things in my answer was, I'm real concerned about playing time. And when I saw Hayura got called up, in the, I play in a league where I could have picked him up. In fact, I actually had him from the start of the year and dropped him because of other roster reasons. And one of the main reasons was, I look at that Milwaukee outfit and I think to myself, here's a team that clearly has playoff aspirations. Here's a team that has a lot of hitters who can hit and are well established as good hitters uh travis shaw's on the il that's why hayura got called up but when i look at that lineup mike what i think is as soon as they get their ducks in a row this guy's gonna not have any path to playing time versus a guy like oscar mercado in cleveland he's an outfielder trying to play in cleveland and it's it's not exactly like the uh, new york yankees of old in that outfield they're all you know 600 550 ops guys so maybe oscar mercado can stick that's how i look at it anyway yeah, absolutely. And then I kicked myself for being too late. Uh, there was a guy that I, I wanted to speculate on, and I can't recall who won him. It was Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, he was on my list two weeks in a row. I think it was uh, a week ago I was strongly considering picking him up. Uh, I didn't put a bid on, and I would have won him for a buck. Uh, this week I decided, all right, you know what, I'm going to do it this week. I'm going to put in a buck. And, of course, this one week there was one other bidder. don't remember who it was, and he went for like 39 fab dollars. And, and that's the kind of speculation I did want to take, but I didn't win him. So you never know, and, and you don't know if Mountcastle is going to come up uh, in a week, in a month, or in September and really not provide much value. Well, that was me. Uh, I signed Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, you know, it's funny, because I, I thought it may have been you, so I, I guess this makes for a good discussion. I mean, were you looking at Rio Ruiz's... Uh, we kidding and thinking, hey, Mountcastle could be the next call-up? 
Well, I was, and it's kind of the same thinking that goes into, I was the guy who signed Oscar Mercado as well a few weeks ago for a buck on a speculative play because I look at just the same thing. I look at Cleveland and I think to myself, there's nobody in this outfield who's playing well at all. Well, maybe Leonis Martin is playing okay, you know, but uh, I'm not looking for center fielders really. I'm looking for corners. And I look through their AAA system and I look at guys and here's this Mercado. His on-base percentage is 408. He's got an 860 OPS. He's stealing a ton of bases. And I think to myself, Cleveland's going nowhere, but they're still somewhat competitive in the AL Central. They have to start looking for production from their outfield. If they don't get any production from their outfield, they're in real trouble, and that's why I got them. Same thing with Baltimore. I look at uh, not just Rio Ruiz, but there's a few guys in Baltimore who aren't really carrying their weight too much, and I thought, here's a team that has to do something to excite their fans. Here's a team that might want to get a look at some of their guys because, you know, they, they want to see what they have when they start moving back towards contention. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll give him a shot. And if they do give him a shot, he's got access to playing time because it's not like he has to beat out, you know, uh, Mike Trout or, or Aaron Judge for a spot in the lineup. He's got to beat out, you know, uh, well, like you said, Rio Ruiz or, or one of their lesser outfielders. Yep. I mean, I, we had the same thoughts. Unfortunately, I didn't expect somebody else to bid the one week I decided that I'm going to make my bid. I actually thought about bidding on him the week before for a buck and didn't. And, and then, then you I, would have been I the got, one mad at me. Yeah, I, 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 I would have been uh, mad. And, and then uh, when I did decide to bid, I thought, now the news is getting around. I'd seen his name pop up a few places, including at Rotographs or Fangraphs, which made me worried because I know it's such a reputable site and a lot of guys look at it uh, that I thought, yeah, this is, this, this is news is starting to spread. I'm not going to bid a buck. I'll, I'll throw in 40. And if somebody wants to get, uh, you know, go, go an extra dollar over me at that level, they can have them. And, and nobody did. So that was good. Yep. It was just me for a buck. So he was all yours. As we speak, Mike, I think you're ninth in the league. You're in the middle of a, not in the middle. Don't remind me. Yeah. You're in a clump of, of, of teams that are all in that kind of mid-60s to low-70s range. How concerned are you that you're behind the leader by 20-some points at the middle of May? To be honest, I think a 24-point uh, being back that many points only a month and a half into the season is really not a big deal at all. I would be more concerned if I was down 40 points. But 20, being in ninth place and only being back 24 points I think is actually not that bad, not as bad as you would expect given a ninth-place ranking right now. So I'm not really worried. I mean, I have Miguel Sano just came back. Um, I, I finally have uh, a semblance of a person at shortstop. Richie Martin, I thought, oh, he's going to be a, a great stopgap until J.P. Crawford is recalled because he's got some speed, he, he's got the job to himself, uh, and he was Brutal, absolutely brutal. He gave me nothing, so I'll actually have a hitter in that spot. And then if Jose LeClerc ever reclaims his closer job, then that, that'll make me look good in saves. So, I mean, there's some hopes that uh, just from those players uh, giving me production, that I'll improve uh, from just them. I've heard some analysts say that when you're looking at your competitive standing in a league, the key issue isn't how many points you have to make up, but how many guys you have to get past. There are how many teams are between you and, and the, the leader. In your case, that's right now, uh, I think, seven guys, if I count this right. How concerning is the number of teams that you have to leapfrog? Because that means there's so many more guys who have to do poorly, more poorly than you, which compounds the difficulty of getting by them. Uh, I think that's actually pretty ridiculous way of looking at things. I mean, if you're in 
uh, a clump where there's four teams ahead of you, but by a total of three points, are you more worried that there's four teams, or are you like, oh, wow, it's only three points for me to gain? All I care about is how many points I need to gain, because it doesn't matter how many teams are ahead of you. If it's only a five-point difference, then that's all that's important. You surprised some people with your $51 bid on Mike Trout at our auction. And as we speak, uh, Baseball HQ's year-to-date values for Trout using on-base percentages per Tout rules have Trout earning about $30 so far, which is good. It's the fourth uh, most value among American League hitters behind George Springer, Tim Anderson, and Adalberto Mondesi. But you do your own valuations. Uh, How much has Trout earned in your system, and where does he stand for you among AL hitters so far? I don't run valuations uh, in season, so I have no idea what he has earned so far. However, I just wonder if he's not totally healthy. If you recall, he started out the season first 12 games. He was amazing even for Mike Trout. We all know that Mike Trout's like the best hitter in baseball, but his Wobo was 579, 13 walks, only four strikeouts. 33% home run per fly ball ratio. Then he was out about four or five games due to a groin injury. He returned. He dh for a couple of games. 28 games since returning, his Woba has only been 358, which is still very solid, but that's, not, that's certainly not Troutian. And his home run per fly ball rate is just below 15%. Again, not Troutian. So he's been completely human since returning from injury. I'm just wondering if that groin injury has affected his hitting at the plate. Uh, If it has, hopefully he heals up soon and he becomes a player that I expected him to be when I bought him for $51. Um, And if he's not and it's just lingering, then that stinks for me. Well, I mentioned George Springer and Adalberto Mondesi, some other top 10 hitters this season by Baseball HQ's valuations. Also a little surprising, Elvis Andrews and Raphael Devers of Boston. Uh, Of the four of them, which ones do you think have the best and worst shots at maintaining their status in the top 10? It might be a surprising answer, but I'm definitely going to go with Adalberto Mondesi. Uh, I'm guessing uh, without looking at my values preseason, I'm pretty sure I had him valued as a top 10 AL hitter going into the year. And, and he's done nothing to, to make me think that I was wrong about that valuation. I mean, the thing is, he hits home runs and he steals bases. So you've got a potential 20-50 guy, and even though his plate discipline is terrible, it's been terrible for years now, uh, he's proven that he could overcome that hit for a decent enough average. He hit to the top of the lineup, so his runs, his RBIs should be fine. So a, a 20-50 guy, I mean, that's an automatic top 10 guy, no matter what league format. So absolutely, Mondesi here. What about uh, Tim Anderson? Do you believe it? Not really. I, th- I believe his BABIP is, is well above 400. That's obviously going to drop. But yeah, I mean, he's another power speed guy, but not nearly as... Uh, speedy as, as Mondesi, at least in terms of him not being as willing to, to run as often. So, I mean, maybe you can call him a, a mini version of Mondesi, but, but I, I take Mondesi by, by a lot. You grabbed Brandon Brennan of Seattle for a zero bid, actually, before he started getting prominent mentions as a potential closer in Seattle. How has Brandon Brennan been for you, and what do you see for him in the balance of the season? Yeah, I love Brennan. Uh, he's done exactly what he did when I picked him up. Basically, he's a strikeout guy, and he's a huge ground ball guy. He's 
generating like 57% ground balls plus striking out guys. I mean, that's like the holy grail of skills that we look for. So he's doing everything that I want. And I think he has a pretty clear path to saves. Uh, Anthony Swarzak, who was the closer after Strickland got hurt, has been horrible. And uh, Rowanis Elias makes no sense as a closer. First of all, he's a lefty. Second of all, he used to be a starter, so he's a guy who can go multiple innings. Do you really want to pigeonhole that kind of a guy as your uh, final inning stopper? No. I mean, maybe he picks up a, a save here and there. But Brennan definitely uh, has a, a chance to garner some saves even in the short term. Uh, I'm pretty shocked that he hasn't saved the game yet, but uh, I expect uh, a month from now that he'll have a couple to his name. 19 strikeouts in 16 and two-thirds innings is not super dominant for a relief pitcher, but uh, of course he has a a relatively low, uh, I should say a relatively high walk rate as well. Are you concerned about that? Obviously not ideal, but when you're striking out 28% of batters and you're generating nearly 60% ground balls, the overall skill set is is plenty good good enough to be a solid closer. You also have White Sox starter Lucas Giolito, who's been a really pleasant surprise for all his owners. The last time I checked, he was around 325 or something like that with a 115 whip, something like that. And that's really good uh, and a little better for you because you actually, he had one poor start early in the season. You happened to have him on your reserve list at the time. What were your ex- expectations for Giolito when you got him? And how has he exceeded those expectations with this terrific start? Well, I certainly didn't expect this. So basically, I was interested in Giolito simply for one reason, because during spring training, reports were that his fastball velocity was up. And when he was a big prospect down in the minors, he was a a mid-90s guy. And then when he came into the majors, his velocity was down. So it seemed like Giolito's velocity was back up to where it had been when he was a top prospect. And so I figured at the end of the auction... You're, you're basically debating between a guaranteed crappy starter or some middle reliever. Why not take a risk and, and, and throw two bucks? Uh, I, I think somebody else threw him out, and I probably outbid him, and I, I, I went to two. Uh, but I, I saw I got him for two. Why not take a chance uh, on a, a former top prospect whose velocity is up, uh, and, and maybe this is going to be his breakout year? And so that's the only reason uh, I bought him. I actually bought him in a couple of leagues, so... I probably threw too much into the Giolito wagon, but but it's worked out so far. At the end of April, Mike, you traded Boston pitcher Brandon Workman for the Giants' first baseman Tyler Austin. He was eligible because he started the season, of course, on a tout American League roster, I think in Minnesota, before he got traded. Uh, Brandon Workman has been more than workmanlike in relief for the Red Sox. Uh, ERA around two and a half, uh, a whip under one the last time I looked, 27 strikeouts in 21 innings. What was your decision process at the time, if you can walk us through your deal where you gave away uh, Workman, but you got Austin? Yeah, this is actually uh, a good story. So Jason Collette emailed me, hey, uh, I need a, a reliever. I have Tyler Austin. Um, a, he was interested in either Brandon Workman or uh, Jake Newberry, who was on the Royals. And so I was like, all right, I think I had somebody coming back from injury. It may have been Giolito, and so I needed to open up a spot anyway. And so I liked Jake Newberry because I thought that his path to saving games for the Royals was better than Workman, who I knew was going to be behind Ryan Brazier and Matt Barnes. So I opted to get rid of Workman 
for that one reason, but there was an, also another reason. We were talking about Brandon Brennan's walk rate. Well, Brandon Workman's walk rate is 19.2%. He's walked 14 batters in 19 and a third innings. That's terrible, obviously. So the only reason he's been so good in terms of run prevention is he sports a 100 BABIP. Remember, the league average is like 295. Workman's at 100. Obviously, that's not going to continue. So as soon as those walks come back to haunt him and he starts giving up more hits on balls and play, that ERA is going to go up and up and up. And suddenly he's going to go from being a, a very good middle reliever to probably back on free agency. When it comes to Babbitt for pitchers, are you in the school that says everybody everybody regresses to 30, or do you believe there's an individual element on a per-pitcher basis? Oh, there's definitely an individual element. A lot of it has to do with the batted ball distribution. I mean, I remember years and years ago, Chris Young was the poster child. Um, Chris Young, the pitcher, of course. Chris Young was an extreme fly ball pitcher who induced a ton of pop-ups. So he had a true skill level of uh, a suppressed Babbitt. He was never going to uh, regress all the way back to the league average of 295. But, of course, that doesn't mean that every low Babbitt and every high Babbitt is the result of legitimate skill or lack of skill. I mean, there's still a lot of luck involved in that number. You have the, the team defense behind them and just randomness like little bloopers falling in. A big part of success in fantasy baseball, Mike, is the ability to basically understand what sunk costs are and to focus on what's coming rather than what's happened, uh, let yesterday stay in the past. How do you deal with player moves that didn't go as well as you'd hoped? Uh, I, I cry. <laughs> I uh, bring out the tissue box. and uh, No, I mean, player moves obviously are always going to work out, so you go back to your process and what made you decide to make that move and see if there's anything you learn from it. If there was anything that you could have seen coming before it came, sometimes the process was correct and the move just didn't work out. For example, Michael Chavis. Chavis, the process was, I didn't expect him to play because the team said he wasn't going to play second base, but it didn't work out. And, and so looking back, I don't think there's anything I would have done differently. So that's basically what you uh, should do uh, any time a move, even if a move works out, you should still go back to what your process was and uh, and repeat it if it was a good process. I think that's outstanding advice. Uh, so many people get focused in on the results rather than the process, and that's not just in fantasy baseball, but in a lot of walks of life. You've got to have a, if you have a good, solid, disciplined process that turns out more positive outcomes than negative outcomes, then you've got to take the negative with the positive because no process is perfect. And if you have a good process, you need to be willing to trust it. And I think that's great advice. So, Mike, why don't we take a break here and uh, get you back in a few minutes? Uh, got to do a little business, and then we'll. Uh, have our National and American League player news. We'll get you back uh, uh, for the second half of the show. How's that sound? That sounds fantastic. Mike Podhorzer writes regularly for Rotographs, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch news reports on player news from the National League and the American League. We have Nick and Jock. They're next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the Take me out with the crowd. Baseball HQ Radio. 
And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with news from the American League and leading off it's the National League Report and our old friend Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Charlie Blackman of Colorado left a game in the fourth inning this week. Uh, I think it was on Thursday. Apparently a calf injury of some kind. What's the latest news there? He fouled a ball off his calf in the third inning of Thursday's game and then aggravated the injury in the field that inning before they finally took him out of the game. Um, officially declared doubtful for Friday and seems doubtful to play, uh, so seems doubtful to play against the Orioles. Uh, the common theme in the reporting here is that Blackman and the team said it's, quote, not the kind of thing to take lightly. So for now, the Rockies beat writers seem to think that Blackman is day-to-day, uh, could require at least one day off to get right, uh, but they're going to going to really watch this thing and make sure it's not, nothing more serious. Ian Desmond figures to start in his place in the short term. I guess as much good news as you can hope for if you're a Charlie Blackman owner like me uh, is that he takes a couple of days off and gets over it, and uh, let's hope that's the case. Uh, New York Mets second baseman Robinson Kanonik placed on the 10-day injured list Thursday with what was called a low-grade strain of his left quadriceps. At the same time, the Mets also put on the IL uh, infielder-outfielder Jeff McNeil. He has a strained hamstring. The Mets called up infielder Louis Guillaume and left-handed pitcher Ryan O'Rourke from AAA to fill the roster spots. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Mets for playing time today. Boy, these Mets, if it isn't one thing, it's another on the injured list. What's going to go on with this latest onslaught of injuries? Yeah, it really is. They're, they've had their troubles. Uh, prior to their injuries, McNeil and Cano had handled virtually all the innings at second base for the Mets this season. Uh, Cano had struggled, XBA of only 252, uh, PX was 84. Historically, he's been much better than that. Uh, career XBA of 297, uh, career PX of 98. Uh, so really a struggle to start the year. McNeil has been red hot, batting 333. However, his expected batting average is 60 points less, and he's delivered only two homers, 165 at-bats. So while uh, while Cano and McNeil are out, Adini Hechevaria is likely to get the bulk of playing time at second. He's known for his defense, but doesn't provide much offense at all. Uh, career... 253 expected batting average, 49 PX. Uh, Guillaume could also get some time at second. Uh, his offensive numbers are even worse than Echeverria's, over 85 major league at-bats. He has an expected batting average of 231 and a 16 PX. So not a lot of help help there for the Mets. Um, the Mets also recalled uh, Ryan O'Rourke from AAA. He had a bit of success in 2016 with a 4.04 XERA and an 81 BPB but missed most of the last two years after undergoing Tommy John surgery. O'Rourke made two more appearances for the Mets earlier in 2019, but he only threw 1.2 innings. I think I might have a way to play this in the future, Nick. Uh, Cano joined several other Mets on the injured list, as I mentioned, including pitcher Seth Lugo and outfielders Brandon Nimmo, who went on the IL Wednesday with a stiff neck. Michael Conforto's on the IL as well. Nick, maybe the play here is not to draft Mets whose surnames end in O. That might be a good idea for given what's happened this season, definitely. <laughs> Phil Hertz also reported that Mets outfielder Yoena Cespedes underwent ankle surgery on Thursday. He hurt himself on his ranch, apparently, and has been officially ruled out for the rest of the season. So I guess if you're in a redraft league, you can safely drop him. If you're in a dynasty or keeper league, you might have to do some thinking about that. The Mets also picked up San Francisco Giants outfielder Aaron Altair off waivers on Thursday and called up veteran outfielder Rajay Davis. What roles might they play in the depleted Mets outfield? 
Well, with all three opening day outfielders on the IL, the Mets uh, claimed Altair and recalled Davis to get some depth. But it's hard to see how much depth Altair actually adds. He's one for 30 this season. So it's hard to recommend rostering, rostering him under any circumstance at all. Uh, now on his third team this month, and your fantasy team should not be the fourth. Uh, Davis is coming off a 2018 season in which he had a 218 expected batting average and a negative BPV. Uh, his speed has held up, however. It was 142 in 2018, leading to 21 steals at Cleveland. Already has 14 steals at AAA this year. So if he gets some playing time, he could help teams that need stolen bases in the short term. It's one of the interesting quirks of uh, category-based fantasy baseball, Nick, is that guys like Rajay Davis really can't supply a lot of value despite not being that terrific as hitters. Uh, I can remember the last, gosh, out of the last three or four seasons, I've probably had Rajay Davis four, five different teams uh, for a dollar, never more than a dollar at the auction. And he always returns you eight, ten bucks because he's going to steal 20 bags, you know, and, and that makes such a difference, especially in today's game where bags are so hard to come by. Yeah, it does indeed. I mean, it's one of those things, one of those guys that uh, if you need steals, you can pick him up at some point during the season uh, and get some real value out of that. You might have to be prepared to take a hit on the batting average or on base percentage side, uh, and certainly you're not going to be looking for much in the way of counting stats beyond that. In Colorado, Nick, the uh, relief pitcher Wade Davis was placed on the 10-day injured list on Wednesday. He has a left oblique strain. Not good news for a pitcher, those obliques. The team also called up Jairo Diaz from AAA. Uh, Rob Carroll covers the Rockies for playing time today. With Wade Davis on the shelf, what's going to happen to the saves distribution in Colorado? Uh, Davis, the defending uh, NL saves leader with 43 in 2018, has pitched well enough for a perfect 7-for-7 seven seven in save opportunities so far this season. Uh, command of 1.8, control 6.1, have been off in 2019, but the damage uh, done in a mere 15 in his pitch can be muted. Uh, with closers, at least in fantasy, it's all about saves and blown saves. Uh, recent word is that Davis's injury is not considered to be severe. He'll be out for at least the 10 days, and there are going to be some lightning leads to protect. Rockies have two likely candidates to get saves in Davis's absences. Right-handed Carlo Estevez, who briefly closed for Colorado in 2016 and has 29 strikeouts and 22 innings pitched this season. And right-hander Scott Oberg, who had been Davis's primary setup man this season. And Oberg has now officially been named the closer in the interim. Um, some, some issues with Oberg, a 4.9 control and a 5.8 dom. Uh, those things are not optimal, certainly for, for an in-gamer. Uh, so far this season, an excellent 1.77 ERA, a 1.18 whip, but 13 strikeouts and 11 walks in 20 innings pitched and a minus 3 BPV. So Oberg's going to get the first save chance. If he blows it, uh, we'll have to see what happens after that. Um, you mentioned Jairo Diaz, Jairo Diaz. He might be part of the equation as well. Uh, Diaz's last three seasons have been dominated by injuries, uh, boarded rehabs, family tragedy, but he has hit 103 miles an hour at AAA, uh, allowing one run in 20 innings pitched, a 0.45 ERA, and has struck out 22. So he could play into the equation as well. And Jairo Diaz, also the subject of Alex Becky's analysis in the Frequent Flyer comment a little later in the pod. Nick, uh, speaking of bullpens in Philadelphia, they have been in something of a state of turmoil all season, with David Robertson first ineffective, then injured. Uh, Alain de Leonardis looked at the latest in the Phillies bullpen this week in his NL East coverage in playing time tomorrow. What does Alain see happening in the Phillies endgame? A month ago, Alain speculated that right-handers Hector Neris and Pat Neshek should see the bulk of the Phillies save ops with David Robertson on the IL with a uh, with a flexor strain. And since then, Neris has six saves, Nessich has two. 
Neres has been lights out in 20 innings pitched, 1.77 ERA, 0.89 whip, uh, 27 strikeouts to 6 walks, uh, 19% swinging strike rate, 172 BPV, uh, really has done an outstanding job. His 24% hit rate and 87% strand rate have been a bit fortunate, uh, and they those are reflected relatively higher, but still perfectly acceptable, 278 uh, expected ERA. Uh, Neris's uh, current 33.8% uh, strike rate is a tick off from last year's remarkable 37.4% mark, which was top two in the game, but is still well within the top 10%. And coupled his ability with his uh, top 6.175 expected batting average, and you really have the makings of a top 10 closer uh, in Neris at this point. And we should say that uh, in general, the hit rate is around 30% for pitchers. And in general, the strand rate is around 70, 72%, something like that. But we have done research at Baseball HQ that indicates that for short-run closers, especially dominant closers with high strikeout rates, that uh, lower hit rates and higher strand rates are not extremely out of the norm. It's not totally unusual to see a mid-20s percent hit rate and a high 80s percent strand rate among elite relievers. Right. And in fact, you know, you would hope your elite relievers are going to give you that kind of strand rate, especially if they're coming into a game and inning with runners on base. So, uh, yeah, those things are, are we consider them to, to some extent lucky. But as we said, the research suggests that for late inning relievers, uh, they can actually maintain those kinds of rates. All right. Well, what about Pat Neshek? Neshek has been effective in his 17 innings, uh, not nearly as dominant as Neris, 3.24 ERA, 1.20 whip. Uh, seven strikeouts with just one walk. Uh, Nesik relies more on deception than velocity, uh, makes up for his below average 88.4 miles per hour velocity with a really funky sidearm delivery that has been consistently tougher on righties, uh, though not so much this season. Uh, 0.629 OPS versus lefties, 7.27 versus righties, so it's close nevertheless. Uh, relies on pinpoint control, which gives him a smaller margin for error than uh, than. Uh, with Neris, who throws much harder than that. I remember before the season, there was a lot of talk that uh, David Robertson might be um, used in a different way. It turns out it, well, he wasn't used at all because he got hurt so quickly and was ineffective before that. But at the time, Nick, in the preseason, it, it, all the talk was keep your eye on or roster Sir Anthony Dominguez, who looked like the candidate coming into the season. What about him? Well, he certainly displayed closer stuff last year with a 149 BPV and Followed up that this year with a 114 BPV. Currently has a 5.03 ERA and a 1.58 whip, and those uh, look really bad when you look at them as, as straight numbers. But he's had some bad luck on balls in play. An 80, 18% homer per fly rate, uh, 37% hit rate. And although he's been used in a setup role, he could easily step in to close out games uh, if he got the call. Baseball HQ has team analysts who apportion all the playing time on all 30 teams, and that includes saves. They break the saves out separately for each team as well. Who do the Phillies analysts say are going to get the saves uh, as we carry on through the season? Uh, we've projected a 45% share of the saves uh, at this point for the rest of the season for, for Neris. Uh, Neshek and Dominguez at 20% each, and Robertson could be in the mix uh, if he gets back into action. In Los Angeles, the Dodgers left-hander Julio Urias was reinstated from administrative leave uh, on Tuesday. That was after he was uh, arrested for domestic violence and immediately put on this category they call administrative leave. 
Uh, with Arias back, the team optioned outfielder Kyle Garlick back to AAA. Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is the latest news on Julio Arias? Urias was reinstated because Major League Baseball was unable to obtain security video that allegedly showed the incident, according to sources that are familiar with the situation. Uh, we had knocked Urias' any pitch protection down when the suspension occurred, and we'll give him back some of that at this point. But uh, be aware that the league's investigation remains open, uh, and this could still get very messy for Urias and the Dodgers uh, once the league is able to contain or if they're able to obtain any kind of evidence of what actually happened. Well, and if something did happen, you hope they do, because otherwise it's starting to, it seems to me in all of these uh, incidents that we hear about in all the sports, that, uh, you know, the the lesson that the guy, any guy who wants to punch somebody out needs to learn is make sure there's no video camera around, and if, if there isn't, you're, you're going to be good to go. Meanwhile, what happens in the Dodgers rotation while Urias is active? Well, Urias immediately becomes a candidate for a spot start, uh, for example, Kenna Maeda was on the uh, on the IL this week with a left adductor contusion. He's going to be back on Sunday. They're not going to need anybody. But uh, a 3.18 ERA, 10.2 DOM, and two wins over his first 28 innings pitched, and lots of upside going forward. Urias is obviously a must-own in most formats if he can stay out of trouble. Uh, Ross Stripling might also figure in the rotation mix, uh, being used out of the bullpen now, but could step in if needed. Uh, Kyle Garlick returned to the minors after just four days in L.A. and a single at bat. Uh, we don't even have a projection for him. One of our favorite columns to talk about here at Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, is the speculator column where we kind of break our own rules at BaseballHQ.com. We're always looking for the 90% play and the uh, and the 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 way that the numbers indicate we ought to proceed. But in the speculator column, they go for the 20% play, the big upside play, the gamble. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield this week issued a revised upside list in which he looks at players who had positive upside notes in the 2019 baseball forecaster. And Ryan says all of the players on his revised list could be viewed as buy-high candidates. And one of those candidates who really jumped out at me was San Diego outfielder Fran Mil Reyes. What was Ryan's take on Fran Mil Reyes? Yeah, since I own Fran Mil Reyes in a couple of leagues, I was delighted to see what, what Ryan had to say. Uh, San Diego's outfield was a logjam to start the season, but um, injuries per performance have suddenly opened the way for Framnell Reyes to snag a near-everyday playing time uh, situation. Uh, we knew he had next-level power before the season started, but he's beefed up the rest of his profile with upticks in his contact rate. That's up from 69% to 73%. Line drive rate is up 21% up to 25%. Fly ball rate is up from 30% a year ago to 39% this year. So uh, a, a general general growth pattern for Ra- Ra- Fran Mil Reyes and things we like to see. The result has been a 14 home run outburst with a 259 batting average that should probably be even higher. Uh, a 26% hit rate has been holding the batting average down, a 295 expected batting average at this point. His barrel rate of 12.5% is top 10 and confirms that he can mash. So we've timed him as a high upside work in progress in this year's forecaster. And we're now a little more confident sticking some lofty numbers on him. Uh, Ryan says upside, up uh, 270 batting average, 45 home runs. Wow, 45 home runs. Uh, even in this home run environment, that would be pretty good. And I've, I've talked to people, Nick, sometimes you mentioned uh, Reyes's increase in contact rate from 69 to 73%. And I've heard people say, ah, eh, 4% increase, it's kind of not that big of a deal. 
But if you think about 600 plate appearances, it is a kind of a big deal because 4% of that is what, 25, 24, 25 um, non-strikeouts, which means he's putting the ball into play. And the thing we know about strikeouts versus non-strikeouts is if you strike out, you're, you're not going to accomplish anything. But putting the ball into play, you can push a guy in from third, you can hit a sacrifice fly, you can advance a runner and make your manager happy. There's lots of things you can do not striking out. And Fran Reyes apparently is doing more of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that 4% does make a difference over the course of a season. Okay, Nick, thanks very much for keeping us up to date. We'll catch up again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, covers the National League beat for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over to the American League now and BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hey, PD, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Certainly better than Angel shortstop Andrelton Simmons. He had to leave the game on Monday with a sprained left ankle. The x-rays at first came back negative, but then they had some more tests the next day. You cover the Angels for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's the latest on Andrelton Simmons? Well, as I understand it, even with the x-rays, the medical staff needs to wait for some of the swelling to subside to offer up more of a timeline as to how long Simmons is going to be out. But the early assessment is anywhere from 6 to 12 weeks. So this is going to be a huge loss for fantasy owners. Uh, The only good news for the Angels is they have at least some reasonable options at shortstop in David Fletcher and Zach Cozart. Luis Rangifo has also been recalled to take over Simmons' roster spots. Possible he could get some at-bats from from that position as well when he isn't at second base. The Angels have done a pretty good job this year, actually, in in maximizing the versatility of their 25-man roster. So it's it's not real obvious to me in the early going as to when and how Brad Asmus is going to handle this. But I think the offensive performance over the short term, how these guys do, is going to likely be a decider. Well, I know at BaseballHQ.com, Jock, the team analysts have given each of those guys, Fletcher, Rangifo, and uh, Zach Cozart, a 10% playing time bump until we also see how Brad Osmus is going to handle the situation, and we'll update that playing time outlook as we get more information. But of the three, from a fantasy perspective, uh, who do you like? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm obviously the, the guy updating the playing time, and I did that the night of the injury, and it was just basically letting letting our subs know Um who's who's all affected by this move the best offensive player of the three right now is Fletcher but he's going to be in the lineup any somewhere between whether it's shortstop second base left field or even third base Cozart began both of the last two seasons as a regular third baseman he's now in the second year of a three-year contract been on the DL for most of it and when active he hasn't hit now he's also the best shortstop defender of the group and that contract and his past offensive performance suggests that Ausmus is going to try to give him at least a shot to get his back going and he'll probably get some shortstop starts and and over the first two games it's been Fletcher and Cozart Um, so I would bet on that configuration for a little while. Ringifo, in the meantime, is getting a lot of time at second base, particularly with Tommy LaStella now shifting over to third base and Fletcher acting like a utility. So for fantasy owners looking for the immediate PT bumps out of this injury, the beneficiaries here immediately are probably Cozart and Ringifo. Well, what about from the point of view of which of them can actually hit? Well, Fletcher Fletcher's the hitter, but I mean, his playing time, I mean, he's, he's going to get 75, 80% playing time. It's what I have him at right now. And I'm probably, now that the injury is more in focus and, and I think uh, Simmons is going to be out a little longer, I'll probably bump him another 5, 10% more. But in terms of the vacated playing time from, uh, from, uh, uh, 
Simmons, um, the big beneficiaries are going to be Cozart and Ringifo. And and given Cozart's, Cozart's slump over the past two years and the fact that Ringifo is pretty much an unknown commodity, um, you, you flip a coin right there. Yeah, when, you, when you're still calling it a slump after two years, that says something, doesn't it? Well, it depends. He's been injured. He's been, he's been injured more than not. So you, you, we can't tell how much the injury plays into this. But uh, you've got a good point. I still look at his performance uh, the year before he signed the contract with Cincinnati and think, well, he's got to be a little better than this. Jock, on the weekend during Prospect Palooza with all the call-ups, I spent 500 bucks of my 1,000 fab in Tout Wars to get... Willie Calhoun of Texas thought I could get some home runs. And the very next day, he uh, went on the 10-day 10, uh, 10 injured list. Actually, it was on Wednesday. He had a strained left quadriceps. Uh, Delano DeShields Jr. has been recalled from AAA in the meantime. What the heck happened to Willie Calhoun? Well, what happened is a tough break for you and all the other Calhoun owners since he'd been raking uh, since his recall from AAA Nashville. Uh, I think he was 10 for 23. I was making a whole bunch of hard contact uh, they think the Rangers think anyway that Calhoun's strain is mild, so he'll return after uh, after ten days. Uh, you, you've got opening day center field starter Delino DeShields coming back up to fill in, but it sounds like DeShields is going to go back to the minors as soon as shortstop Elvis Andrus is ready to return from his uh, rehab stint. So a lot of moving parts here. Texas did get some positive news as well. The Rangers activated their former closer or erstwhile closer, Sean Kelly, from the 10-day IL on Tuesday. He had some benign lumps removed from his throat. That's a heck of a diagnosis, benign lumps. Rod Truesdell covered this one for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Now that uh, Sean Kelly is back from his benign lumps, what happens in the Texas bullpen? Well, he'll be back in the late innings, and he might even grab a few save opportunities. Uh, he's got four to date uh, until Texas d- decides to return their young investment, Jose Leclerc, to the closer role, and we and we think that's going to happen. Uh, Kelly pitched pretty well before going to the IL. He had a 169 ERA with a 14 to two strikeout to walk ratio uh, over his first 16 innings. But a 3.84 expected ERA in his recent history says Kelly's not likely to keep that low walk rate and. Uh, that dom rate of just 7.7 uh, strikeouts per nine is his worst since uh, becoming a, a full-time major league leaguer. He, he also has a fly ball lean that makes him more home run prone, which has shown up in recent years. And history suggests rough times for any pitcher with that kind of a problem in Texas as the weather heats up. Uh, I don't think he's much more than a short-term option for saves here. He's 35, and his recent history s- suggests some some blow-up potential to go along with the few saves you're going to get, in, in just my opinion. Yeah, I noticed that he'd only allowed two home runs so far in his 14 innings, which was a bit encouraging. But as you say, there's uh, there's storms, clouds of brewing uh, with the weather in Texas. It's already a very home run friendly park. As we know, Texas is themselves hitting a lot of home runs. That can't be good news. Uh, staying in Texas, Houston placed right-hander Colin McHugh on the 10-day injured list on Tuesday. He had right elbow discomfort. Uh, you covered this story as well, Jock. Uh, McHugh had really been struggling. What happens now in the Houston rotation? Yeah, that's really ominous news, uh, and it may explain some of his early season ineffectiveness and his fastball velocity drop. Uh, it's another one of those stories that uh, it was reported as right elbow discomfort. We don't know what that means. We're probably going to have to make more adjustments as this prognosis shakes out. But it, but at least for right now, uh, McHugh had already been replaced in the rotation by Corbin Martin, and he just got a longer lease. We've increased his playing time uh, by about 2% of all the remaining Houston innings. Um, 
So um, it, it's it's that it's going to be interesting to watch to see what happens. A lot of us have been watching, waiting, and wondering about top pitching prospect Forrest Whitley. Is he being held back for service time considerations, Super 2 and arbitration? You know, I kind of doubt that right now, at least for right now, because Whitley has been just awful at AAA Round Rock thus far. I mean, eight, eight starts, it's a small sample, and it's and the PCL is, is a tough place for pitchers. But so far, of his eight starts, only two of them have been any good, and he's given up 15 walks and nine home runs in just 24 innings pitch. It's a, a 12.21 ERA. 29 strikeouts say the stuff is still there, but he's not coming up to Houston until he makes some sort of an adjustment. It's, it's kind of hard to get worked up right now about what Hit Whitley's done to date. Harder still for him to get called up, much less worked up. Uh, Houston also recalled a guy named Brady Rogers, a relief pitcher from AAA. Any fantasy interest there? No, nah, not really. He, he's put up decent numbers in the PCL, mostly as a starter, 3.22 ERA uh, over 42 innings, but just 32 strikeouts. It's kind of the tip-off. I think he's a, a Houston to Round Rock bullpen shuttler until he can prove otherwise. In Tampa, they placed third baseman Yandy Diaz on the 10-day injured list. On Thursday, he had a bruised left hand. What are the playing time implications for Tampa and Yandy Diaz? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of interesting. Our our uh, Tampa's another team that has done a really good job in uh, in um, making their 25-man roster pretty versatile. Our our, temp, our analysts have given a PT bump to Austin Meadows, which makes sense given that he's gotten a little DH time, and and uh, and uh, Yandy Diaz was getting it too. But but Diaz has been getting most of his time at third base, and uh, the 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 Rays have some injury problems at third base right now. What with Christian Arroyo in the minors and uh, and Matt Duffy. Uh, still uh, struggling. I think it's with a hamstring injury. Um, I think Daniel Robertson is going to get a reprieve here. He's had a terrible start, but since Diaz has, has been out, he's started the last few games at third base. Uh, um, so I, I, I think there's a hole right there in Tampa Bay at, at third base, at least right now. And I'm not sure what they're going to do with it. I know at Baseball HQ they reported that uh, Diaz has looked unlucky this year so far. He's only batting 229, but his expected batting average is 290. He has a 24% hit rate, but 140 hard contact index, which would indicate his hit rate should be higher. Therefore, his expected batting average is justified. If a current Diaz owner was a little worried about this uh, injured list trip and the shaky surface stats, especially batting average, what should uh, should I, I think a guy should be listening? Yeah, no, you're right. Anyone who needs a third baseman right now should be going after the Diaz owner and trying to talk up this injury because you're right, that uh, 229 batting average is a bit unlucky. He's made good hard contact. Um, this is a this is a buying opportunity if the Diaz owner in your league has shaky hands. The Rays also recalled Ryan Yarbrough, a relief pitcher slash opener from AAA. Does he go back to his role as an opener, or is he going to be a reliever? What's going to happen with Ryan Yarbrough? Yeah, it's a good question. He struggled this year, and and he was the poster boy for openers last year. But he was when he was recalled this week, they actually put him in for a regular start, uh, and he made the most of it. He pitched into the eighth inning. He gave up four hits and one one walk, two earned runs. Only four strikeouts. Now, mind you, this was against the Cleveland offense, which uh, has been uh, anemic is an understatement to talk about Cleveland's offense. Uh, but still, it's a, it's a really good game. It's PQS4. Um, whether Yarbrough stays as a traditional starter or returns to the bulk innings role behind the opener or both, only the Rays really know for sure here. 
And I'd just like to say that I think this is an interesting development because I really admire that the Rays are willing to do whatever they think works best, and they don't get locked into these ideas. Now, ordinarily, we would expect that Yarbrough had had some success in this bulk innings rule last year. I think he had 16 or 17 wins in that role, and the the common sense thinking or the, the conventional thinking on Tampa's part would have been to say, all right, we'll bring him back. He'll be the bulk innings guy again. He was successful in that role before. But I think they're smart enough to look past that and look at the actual skills. And that being the case, I think it bears watching to see what Tampa decides to do with Yarbrough and rather than assuming that he's just going to be business as usual. Yeah, good point. And I think the other factor here is that um, there's no reason to get cute against a team like Cleveland. Just throw a decent pitcher out there or the best pitcher you can and, and see what happens because there's a good chance Cleveland's not going to score that that many runs if the guy has his stuff. And speaking of Cleveland and their uh, anemic offense, uh, they cut outfielder Carlos Gonzalez on Wednesday. Uh, Tom Kephart covers uh, Cleveland for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What happens next in the Cleveland outfield? Well, their offensive problems are well established, as we've done on this show. Um, um, they don't seem to get much better with uh, by de- by uh, designating Carlos Gonzalez. Uh, he's the second aging veteran they've cut uh, following Hanley Ramirez. Uh, outfielders Oscar Mercado and Jordan Luplo would seem to be the PT, the playing time winners here, as both uh, both are right-handed hitters. Um, they might have a short-term opportunity for regular playing time. Um, HQ team analysts have bumped Mercado's playing time by 45% and Luplo's by 25%. Mercado is a speedster with some good line drive skills and plate discipline. He could he could get some stolen bases, but he was also removed from Thursday's game with a hip contusion. His status is unknown now. Um, Luplo's done well so far in his small number of bats versus left-handed pitching, and he and, he, and like I said, he could get this chance now against righties. But he hasn't yet, and his track record against them isn't good. So I honestly don't know what they're going to do with that outfield. They're, they're such a candidate to make a trade or, or, or do something dramatic. Uh, I, and I'm surprised they haven't done it yet. Well, of course, I think they're in full-on cost-saving mode at this point, and they may feel themselves a little constrained about going out and acquiring, especially anybody with a with a significant salary. And if they look around with the Twins playing as well as they are, maybe Cleveland's just looking at it, going, you know what, this isn't going to be our year. They're they're already. Uh, I, th- I think I heard they're closer to last place than first in the American League Central. And then they look around and say, well, maybe we can get the wild card. Then you look at the AL East, you've got the Yankees, Boston, and Tampa just going great guns. Maybe Cleveland's just throwing in the towel. I- I'd be very surprised at this point to see them make any kind of major move. Yeah, good point. I'm not sure what they are now. The last I checked the standings, they were a couple games over 500. They may be right there or just a game game over now and and those fans have a lot of high expectations uh i think you're right i don't think they're going to spend a lot of money but but then again given given some of their pitching depth even with injuries they may not have to if they want to throw up a a hail mary at this season uh um, obviously um uh, we've been talking about a a a hypothetical trade between cleveland and the padres for for a long time and the padres have a lot of cheap young outfield talent uh um, I would love to see something there, given that I own a few Padres. And 
I could see them doing that, uh, but if it was San Diego trading, they're not going to trade away young outfielders. They're going to trade away one of the older guys, wouldn't you think? Well, I'm pretty sure in San Diego, that's, that's pretty much all they have is young outfielders. I mean, yeah, they have Will Meyer, but uh, but you look across the board, they've got Framil Reyes, they've got Hunter Renfro, they've got Franchi Cordero, they've got Alex Dickerson. Um, so they're, they're loaded with, with, with young talent there in San Diego. And I suppose there's also a possibility if you're managing in Cleveland uh, or if you're in the front office in Cleveland, you might look at your offense and say, you know what, we're not going to score a lot of runs, but uh, Clevenger's apparently nearly ready to come back. Kluber will be back in another four weeks or so. Uh, Bieber's pitching very, very well. Maybe they think they can pitch their way into contention. And I'll tell you what, Jock, if they were to get into the playoffs with uh, a front three of uh, Kluber, then Clevenger, Carrasco, then you got Bieber as your number four starter. They could go a ways in the playoffs even with a poor offense. Yep, big difference between the regular season and the postseason for sure. The Yankees placed left-hander CC Sabathia on the 10-day injured list with knee inflammation. Recalled a guy named Nestor Cortez Jr. from AAA. Matt Dodge covers the story for playing time today. So what happens in the Yankees rotation with what is just the latest in a seemingly endless parade of injuries in the Bronx? Well, Sabathia has been bothered by his right knee for a while now. Uh, he's had he's had problems with it for several seasons. He'll have it drained of fluid and injected with Rubicon for the fourth time, from what I gather, since the 2015 season. He's going to be out for at least the next next couple of weeks now. Reports have mentioned a lot of guys for his innings: uh, Chance Adams. Uh, David Hale, uh, guys they've called up from the minors. Adams used to be a prospect, and and he might be the best bet if they need him. But I think what the Yankees are hoping for is a week from now, uh, they're going to get James Paxton back from his own uh, knee issues. Um, um, There may be only one start between that, but I, I think that's what the Yankees are looking at. And they might even uh, take a look at one of those multi-reliever type games or an opener and a bulk guy type games and get them through till Paxton returns. That's a good point. Uh, finally, uh, the Yankees the Yankees using an opener would be interesting. I don't, have, have they done that yet? I'm not sure. I, I haven't followed them that closely. I believe they have at least once that I can recall, and maybe more. I, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure they've used it at least once in a similar sort of situation as a bridge to, to get them past a, uh, a gap, you know, kind of thing. Sure. Finally, Jock, uh, Baltimore acquired outfielder Keon Broxton from the Mets for some international bonus pool space. Uh, Matt Dodge, again, on the story for playing time today. What will Broxton's role be in a um, Baltimore outfield? Well, Jerry Rickard had just been bounced from the 25-man roster. He's been optioned. Uh, um, uh, 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 immediately, I think Matt cut both uh, Rickard and Stevie Wilkerson's playing time 10% because that move, that corresponding move hadn't been made. Wilkerson's hot. He's got a 803 OPS over the past 31 days. It includes five homers. Uh, so he's going to stick around. Uh, he, he could lose a little bit of playing time maybe, but I don't think so, at least not in the short term. Rickard was pretty awful. Uh, he's gone. Broxton can run. He's going to get a lot of center field time, and he's shown above average power. Uh, um, the, the, the problem is he just strikes out a ton. His 58% contact rate always seems to kill him and his playing time in the end. There's a lot of volatility on the uh, Orioles playing time grid, and they've got some some prospects they're talking about calling up now. DJ Stewart is one of them. He's a corner outfielder. I think there's going to be more volatility on the Orioles playing time grid uh, now and over the long term. The thing that struck me when I heard about this move, Jock, is that the Mets 
have all kinds of outfield troubles of their own. Uh, we talked about that earlier with Nick. They've got uh, all kinds of injuries. Conforto's out. Uh, um, Cespedes is finished for the year. They, uh, Brandon Nimmo's hurt. They, they've got a lot of gaps in their own outfield, and they trade away Keon Broxton. You, you'd think to yourself, well, if you're, if you're facing all these difficulties, why would you trade away anybody you think can play? And the answer, I think, is they don't think he can play. Well, yeah, and, and what's interesting was uh, Broxton actually made some comments in the press about a week before he was traded about how he wasn't getting any playing time. I mean, he, he just he wasn't, uh, he wasn't getting at bats and, uh, and his game wasn't coming together. And a lot of people, a lot of uh, observers expected him to be traded after those, and that happened. And, of course, the Mets being the Mets, then their outfield fell apart even more so. Um, had, had Broxton not said anything and perhaps the Mets not traded him, perhaps he would be getting playing time, but uh, that's not what happened. No, sometimes it pays to, to keep quiet about that. I mean, if, if you're Mike Trout, you can say whatever you like, <laughs> right? Because they, they have to keep you. But if you're Keon Broxton, not so much. A 58% contact rate, you said, uh, jockey strikes out more often than a nerd at the high school prom. So he's going to have his, his work cut out for him to even stay on the roster in Baltimore, I suspect. But we'll, we will see. Uh, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll catch you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it'll be part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. But right now, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, Ray Murphy has the results of the Baseball HQ Memorial Day staff survey. Is Tim Anderson's hot start a fact or a fluke? What about Brandon Woodruff's? Find out what more than 30 HQ staff analysts, writers, and podcast hosts think of these and 23 other pressing fantasy baseball questions. In Playing Time tomorrow, analyst Brian Slack looks at playing time situations in the National League West, including the Arizona outfield, the San Diego infield, the San Francisco bullpen, and more. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Budd validates the performances of five players, including Walker Bueller, Will Myers, and Kyle Freeland. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers fantasy market analysis, and injury analysis. And we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards and the pitcher matchups tool, leading indicators for hitters and pitchers, and a whole bunch more. And of course, we have the Baseball HQ subscriber forums, where you can interact with other passionate and highly knowledgeable fantasy baseball players like you. Add it all up. You've got tools, you've got content, you've got action and interaction, and you can use it all to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. Mike, welcome back. Good to be back, Patrick. Earlier this month at Rotographs, you wrote a couple of articles about the surge in fly balls, and you were focusing on hitters who had shown the largest gains in fly ball percent in the first five weeks, I think it was, or so of this season. Why did this interest you? It's because batted ball distribution, ground ball, line drive, fly ball rates, that stabilizes 
I wouldn't say super quick, but it stabilizes a lot quicker than results. So while home run per fly ball will fluctuate greatly throughout the season, ground ball and fly ball rates don't usually. So if you see uh, a real big difference in uh, a hitter's fly ball rate uh, after the first month, then there's a probably a good chance that this is a new approach and you can bet on maybe not it totally being held for the rest of the year, but that most of the gains will be held. And this could be uh, a, a new level for that player. Are you assuming that most of the change is the result of a deliberate choice by the player to change his launch angle? Uh, in terms of batted ball distribution, that would be the assumption. Because, I mean, that's really uh, an approach thing. I mean, you don't luck into a 50% fly ball rate. Joey Gallo, obviously, because of his power, hits fly balls often. Somebody like uh, a D. Gordon or a Billy Hamilton is going to want to approach it by hitting ground balls and taking advantage of their speed. So when you see a change there, it, it's, it's not going to be by accident that Joey Gallo is all of a sudden hitting 50% ground balls or, or D. Gordon is hitting 50% fly balls. That's deciding and coming to the plate saying, okay, I'm now going to become a fly ball hitter or I'm now going to become a ground ball hitter. The poster boy for this season changing in launch angles has been Christian Yelich of Milwaukee. Nearly 18 percentage points of gain in his fly ball percentage, and it seems to be paying off. He's having a nice boom in his home runs, but you also point out there's a dark underside here of negative potential. What's the danger in Christian Yelich's evolution into more of even more of a fly ball hitter? I, I hate to say danger because it makes it sound like there's something for Christian Yelich owners to worry about. And there's not. Uh, I'm starting to think that Christian Yelich might actually be the best hitter in baseball. He had another two home runs today. I mean, it's just gotten ridiculous, like absolutely crazy how good he's been. And, and he's proven that last year's second half is absolutely no fluke. But with Yelich, more fly balls, and this is for anybody, more fly balls is going to lead to a lower BABIP just because fly balls fall for a hit. Uh, less frequently than ground balls, and of course less frequently than line drives. So if you're turning grounders into fly balls, that's bad for BABIP, which is bad for batting average, but of course it's good for home runs. So really there's a balance here, and, and we can't know for sure if overall it'll lead to uh, more fantasy value, but for Yelich, it's going to hurt his BABIP, which it has, but he's hit so many home runs that I don't think it's really affected his batting average. You also sounded a cautionary note about Jorge Polanco of the Twins, whose fly ball percentage is up to over 50%, I think it was around 37, 38 last year. What's the story with Jorge Polanco, and what's the concern there? Same thing? Well, it's a different concern. So a guy like Christian Yelich, who is now, I guess, proving that he can post 30% home profile fly ball rates, he clearly has a, the power to take advantage of all those fly balls. A guy like Jorge Polanco, whose home run per fly ball rate right now is like 12%, this is not a guy that you want hitting 50% of fly balls because he doesn't have enough power to actually take advantage. If he goes from 10 home runs to 13 home runs, who cares? That's going to kill his BABIP, kill his batting average, kill his on-base percentage, and it, it's not going to gain him any uh, offensive output. So guys that really don't have enough power to take advantage of the fly balls have no business hitting fly balls 50% of the time. You really want a guy who hits upper teens at least home run per fly ball rate to, to hit that many fly balls. 
Another guy who's been lofting more balls and doing well in it is Hunter Dozier of Kansas City. His fly ball percentage up to 47 from 37 last season. And you said in the article that you can't say if he's going to be able to keep it going at the same pace, but you did validate his performance year to date. What's the difference between those two things? Yeah, that's actually a really good question and something that's important to clarify. So a lot of what we look at, we're basically trying to explain what they've already done and determine is what they have done real or not. That's the first step. Once you determine if that's real or not, you then still have to project going forward if they're going to keep up those underlying skills driving the results. So basically what I'm saying is that, yes, what Hunter Dozier has done looks legit, but that doesn't mean he's going to continue hitting that many fly balls, striking out at that same level, and continuing to earn that kind of fantasy value. That's another level, and, and that's a lot harder to do, to actually project going forward if, he co- if he's going to be able to maintain those uh, skill gains. Well, right on schedule after the article came out, Dozier's fly ball percentage after, actually fell off a little bit, down to 43% or so. Uh, there's a certain amount of natural variability in all of this stuff, so should owners be keeping an eye on this trend? I don't think necessarily because, again, it's backwards looking. So whether you know Dozier is now down to a 35% fly ball rate, it's already happened. So it, it, it's really a matter of projecting forward. Yes, we, we want to know, is Dozier going to be a 40-plus percent fly ball guy, or is he only going to be like a mid-30% guy? But we don't know that. I mean, we can guess based on his history – but that's really it, unless you talk to the guy and you know what he's going to do at the plate in terms of launch angle. As we see, it's, it's varied throughout the season. It fluctuates, and so we don't know if the first four weeks are the real Dozier and he's going to rebound back to that level, or if the last couple of weeks is the real Dozier and he could be back down to the mid-30% range. Well, I guess that comes back to the question of, is there an explanation for what we're seeing that's, that is different? So you look at Hunter Dozier, his fly ball rate in 2018 was around 37%. Uh, this year it's up to 42%. And, th- you know, we always have to understand that there is a certain amount of natural variation that occurs in all of these things. But if you, you, I think you had a cutoff of plus 10% to, to make the, your list, uh, something like that. And that's outside the range of variability. And so once you put a guy on the list... The next question is trying to determine, is he doing it on purpose? Was this by design or is it just something that seems to have happened? And again, the assumption is that he's doing it on purpose. And then when you look at Hunter Dozier's down to about 42%, so he's given up about half the gain, then you have to start having to ask yourself, well, is he going back to his old ways? Is What else could be going on here? And to me, that's a really important thing that you have to understand because if you're counting on him maintaining his power production – at the same levels as earlier in the year and his batted ball profile is changing, then you've got problems. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you take any example and some guys maintain their fly ball gains and some guys regress back to their historical marks. And of course, like for a guy like Hunter Dozier, where we have a very limited sample of uh, his major league history, we really don't know what his, his true talent fly ball rate is. So when you're trying to figure out if, if it was on purpose, the fly ball rate game, I mean, usually what I would just do is kind of Google articles and see if there was something about him changing a swing to, to try to elevate the ball more. And if I can't find anything, that it's like, all right, you throw up your hands, you're like, all right, well, I don't know. 
And if you don't know, then you can't really count on him continuing it or not continuing it. It really does leave you a bit in the dark. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. And Mike, on the flip side of that, uh, guys who are in the flyball revolution, you have guys who are out of it. And uh, uh, these were hitters who were headed in the opposite direction, down at least 10 points from previous levels in fly balls. Uh, what should we expect from a hitter who's falling in the wrong direction as far as fly balls are concerned? Yeah, I mean... Sometimes I, I wonder if those players are hiding injuries because uh, you read a lot about guys who have shoulder injuries and it, it makes it more difficult for them to lift the ball. So are these guys hiding injuries? Uh, I don't know. But it just, it's weird in this time where fly ball rates are going up for guys to see their fly ball rates decline by 10%. You wonder, you're like, that can't possibly be by design. It must be that they're totally messed up at the plate or hiding an injury. And Either of those are not good. So uh, I'd be very wary about those types, especially guys that you're counting on power from. Well, one of the hitters you profiled was Cleveland first baseman Carlos Santana. His fly ball percent at the time was down 18 points, under 30% from near 50. Uh, You make the point that he has offset his launch angle change with some other changes that have let him maintain most of his value. What is Carlos Santana doing right in the the situation of a declining fly ball rate? Well, it's funny because this just illustrates how much these rates fluctuate during the season because since that article was posted, his fly ball percentage has actually risen back above 30%. And his home number fly ball rate, which was way higher to kind of offset the low fly ball rate, that's come right back down and it's sitting right at his career mark. Uh, His BABIP is still around 300, tied for the highest mark of his career. So... Aside from the fly ball rate still being a little low, Carlos Santana is back to being Carlos Santana. Uh, it, it seems like this was a small sample issue where early on, for whatever reason, he wasn't able to lift the ball. But since he's been back to normal, um, a guy like Carlos Santana, you want hitting a lot of fly balls because he has the power to hit it out, and he's slow, so it's not like he's going to leg out an infield hit and take advantage of ground balls. So, so you want him hitting those fly balls. Um, I'd still value Santana as I did it in the preseason, whatever that was. Yeah, the other thing that uh, when I look at Santana's batted ball profile is, uh, well, first of all, his fly ball percentage, even though it's back up over 30%, is still way lower than in years past. And that I think it has to be a concern because uh, you, you've made the point that the production of home runs is a combination of how many fly balls do you hit and what percentage of them go out. And and the amount of fly balls a guy hits is somewhat in his control. The, the number of them that go out is much less so. And uh, in the case of a guy like Carlos Santana, who's usually drafted because people are looking to get some home runs out of him, uh, this seems to be a matter or should be a matter of some concern. It could be, but the fact that it's back above 30% already suggests to me, without going back to his game log and doing the math, it suggests that over the last couple of weeks since I posted the article, that his fly ball rate is now back to normal, and his, his uh, season average is just gradually rising to catch up, because it started out so, so low. But, yeah, I mean, if, if he really is going to continue to only post a 30% mark the rest of the way, then that's obviously a big problem. And it means that Carlos Santana is probably not worth anything in uh, a shallow mixed league. Another guy who made your list of uh, big decliners in fly ball percentage really surprised me is Raphael Devers of Boston. 
he's been a breakout fantasy star. I mentioned his name earlier. He's in a top 10 fantasy hitter this year by baseball HQ evaluations without having uh, a big fly ball percentage. What is he doing right to counter the shortage of fly balls? Yeah, it's been a really mixed bag uh, for Devers, although I'm sure his fantasy owners don't think of it that way. But he's improved his strikeout rate significantly. It's down like almost 10 points to like a really good mark for a power hitter. Uh, his swinging strike percentage is also down, validating that strikeout rate improvement. Uh, his batting average is, is, has spiked, and his BABIP has surged uh, well above 300. And that's actually supported by a 26% line drive rate. So all that is great news. However, oddly, <clears throat> his power is way down. His home run per fly ball rate has been cut in half. He's, he's hitting uh, fewer fly balls. So you wonder if this changes in approach, if that saps his power. And maybe he's the kind of guy who has to choose. Does he want to make better contact and hit for average? Or does he want to hit for more power? And at this point in his career, he's not able to actually do both. We, we don't know, but, but that's a possibility that we're seeing right now. Or it could be that the team has said to him, look, you need to hit more line drives because uh, that's what we need from that roster slot or from that lineup slot. We've got enough guys hitting home runs, thanks a lot. Uh, if you could just get on base and run the bases a little bit, it might be more of a help. Uh, the, you never know what they're at. the team is asking of them as well, something that they might know that we don't. Uh, Billy Hamilton of Kansas City, also on the list of flyball decliners. But as you said earlier, a guy like Billy Hamilton hitting fewer, uh, f- hitting fewer fly balls is exactly what we want. Well, yeah, it's what we want, but it hasn't actually helped because Billy Hamilton has been horrible and has not been helping my Towers team at all, aside from his stolen bases. And by not helping you, what you're saying is he's still not hitting for average, not getting on base enough, all these kind of things. He's yeah, not, he's, he's still a, been horrible offensively. Uh, from outside of a fantasy standpoint, he's been a terrible hitter. You also had a pair of articles about leaders and laggers in a metric you came up with uh, where you combine uh, barrels per fly ball plus line drive percent. And before we talk about hitters on these lists, maybe explain how the metric works and why you found it useful. Yeah, so barrels is actually uh, a metric that was invented by the guys at StatCast uh, at MLB.com. And what I love about the metric is it actually combines exit velocity with launch angle. And it, it calculates what is the ideal combination of exit velocity and launch angle to reach like an expected, I think it's OPS, above a, a certain mark. Basically, it's the best kind of hit. And so, so they've determined what that level is. And uh, somebody gets credit for a barrel if they reach that minimum exit velocity launch angle combination. So the best indicator of a well-struck ball and of power would be a barrel. And so we want to take how many barrels has a a hitter hit and divide that by how many opportunities for a barrel. And you generally will only barrel up the ball based on the launch angle minimum, uh, a fly ball and a line drive. Really are the only two batter ball types that can qualify. You can't hit a barrel on a ground ball because it's not going to have a launch angle. So we want to see how many barrels out of how many fly balls and line drives. And that has a pretty strong correlation with home run per fly ball ratio. And line drive percentage has a really good correlation with other kinds of base hits. So if you add them together, you're going to have a, quite a productive hitter. So uh, what do you know, as we talked about earlier, some of these metrics are validating backward-looking, and some of them are supposed to be predictive and forward-looking. Where does this one fall? 
Yeah, again, this is backward looking. This is what have they already done? Are they hitting a lot of barrels? And basically the way I use it is to match it up with home run per fly ball rate. So if I see a guy has uh, high barrels per fly ball plus line drive rate, but a low home run per fly ball rate, I'll usually investigate further. Maybe they're not pulling any of their fly balls, and so they're going the opposite way, and so they're kind of just die, or they're going to center field, and so they're just dying before the wall. So there, there could be another reason that the home run per fly ball is low, but if I don't see anything, then he looks like a buy-low candidate, uh, a guy who in the future you could probably expect a significant improvement in home run per fly ball, assuming he maintains a similar level of barrels rate. And that's the thing is that you still have to project barrel rate going forward because that might not be repeated for the rest of the year. So it's, it's really just about matching up barrel rate and home run per fly ball. And then if you see a discrepancy, then I would bet on the barrel rate to be the level that that batter uh, regresses toward or moves toward. There were some names that we would expect to see on the leaders list in this metric. Mike Trout, Gary Sanchez, Joey Gallo, you mentioned Peter Alonzo, the Mets rookie, but I also saw some surprises, starting with uh, a guy you mentioned earlier that you wish was on your roster, Michael Chavis of Boston. And you noted that his high score in the metric is backed up with some high scores in other metrics, giving you more confidence that what you're seeing is, is the truth and not some kind of statistical variance. Yeah, well, I mean, he is striking out a, a good deal, but it's not a big deal at all. I mean, it's not an alarming number. It's, it's I think, the high 20% range. Um, not a big deal, but it, it is there. Uh, but what I really like is that his walk rate is like 14%. Uh, that's pretty incredible for a rookie who sometimes rookies come up and, and they're very aggressive and, and their walk rates plummet. Uh, but Chavis' hasn't, and, and that really suggests to me that he's not being overmatched and he's fully ready for the majors to hit and that it's going to prevent him from slumping, but at least he's going to get on base via the walk, and he's not going to go through a couple of weeks slump where he's not getting hits and just not getting on base because he's not walking. So that's, that's a really good sign. Um, what I do worry about, though, is a very low line drive rate, and combined with a high fly ball rate, uh, I don't think he's going to be able to maintain his 347 BABIP. So uh, I think that's due to significantly regress, which means he's going to really hurt in batting average sooner or later. But that doesn't mean that I think the power is going to decline. I, I think he'll still be a productive player, but not nearly to the degree he's been. And, of course, Tout Wars, uh, an OBP league, that 14% walk rate is going to offset a, uh, a little bit of the uh, of the decline in base hits uh, caused by the Babbitt regression. In Colorado, the outfielder David Dahl, something of a riddle on your metric, excellent scores on this one and others, but only three home runs to, so, to show for it. What do Dahl's seemingly anomalous results say to you about him? Yeah, he's also had a, a very strange profile. He hasn't walked a lot. He's striking out over 30% of the time. Uh, he's obviously crushing the ball via barrels, but the home runs haven't really been there, which is surprising for a guy who calls Coors Field home. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'm jumping to buy him just because his batting average, I believe, is still over 400, so I think his batting average is due for a big fall. But I think his power is definitely going to uh, improve over the rest of the year. So strictly from a home run perspective, his pace is, should dramatically improve over the rest of the season. You mentioned another two hitters, Gordon Beckham and Josh Donaldson, who are way up on the list, but they have offsetting issue that could concern owners. Both of these guys have a problem that you identified. What was that? Yeah, well, I don't think there are a whole lot of Gordon Beckham owners, but for those few that are out there, 
it looks like this was a conscious change in approach. His strikeout rate has skyrocketed to way, way above anything he's ever done in the past, and that has coincided with uh, a power breakout. And so just given the era that we're in now and the fact that Gordon Beckham has been left for dead and is trying to make his way back to the majors, it makes total sense that he would just try to sell out for power, do anything he could to get back in the majors and actually perform offensively. So this looks like a conscious change in approach. Um, Josh Donaldson also is seeing uh, an increased strikeout rate, not nearly to the same degree, but I think this is more of a, an aging player rather than a change in approach. But the good news is his power has rebounded. It, it seems like he's fully healthy again. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. And Mike, as I mentioned earlier, you also posted some results of that same barrels per fly ball plus line drive percent metric study looking at the bottom of the list. And again, we see hitters here we would expect, Malik Smith, Jared Dyson, guys like that. But there are also a few head scratchers and none itchier than Jackie Bradley Jr. And you actually said in the article, this is one of the ugliest skills lines I've ever come across. And then you ask what's gone wrong with Jackie Bradley Jr. So I'll ask you, what's gone wrong with Jackie Bradley Jr.? Yeah, I mean, it's been so bad that you kind of hope that he's playing injured and hiding some injury, because if he's not, then it's amazing that he continues to have a starting job, because it's just like everything that you look at, every skill that I look at has just moved in the wrong direction and way in the wrong direction. So let's start. Career-high strikeout rate, career-worst swinging strike rate, his line drive percentage is very weak. His ground ball percentage has skyrocketed to near 58%, which is what you'd want from a Billy Hamilton, not a Jackie Bradley, who, who clearly has power. Uh, career low fly ball percentage. His pop-up rate has nearly doubled from his career mark. He's not even pulling his fly balls. That's at a career low. And his fly balls are now going the opposite way at a career-high rate. So literally everything that you want to see from a hitter has gone in the wrong direction. So how long do you stick with Jackie Bradley Jr. if you happen to have him on your roster? I don't think either. I know I don't. Do you? Well, it's funny because uh, in one of my leagues uh, hosted on the NFBC site, I think it's actually the Great Fantasy Baseball uh, Invitational, uh, I, I had to pick up an outfield to do to an injury or, or something. I, I can't recall. And in a 15-team league, obviously, your, your pickings are slim. And so Bradley was dropped. I'm like, all right, Jackie Bradley. I mean, uh, I liked him heading into the season. He's had some good years. I'll pick him up. And, and this was a couple of weeks ago, so it's it just continued to be bad. And, and so I'm, I'm still trotting him out there because I don't really have many other options. But if you did, you'd exercise them. Yeah, I mean, the guy, he, he's batting ninth as well. So even if he did improve, it's still very difficult to earn some fantasy value batting ninth when you're not stealing like 30 bases. Colton Wong of St. Louis was everybody's darling in week one with those three quick homers. But since then, not so much. Uh, what does Wong's low result in this metric tell you about his performance? I mean, it's the, the standard early season, hot player, knee-jerk reaction to pick the guy up, and, and he's reverted right back to where he's always been. Uh, and, and most of his metrics are right in line with where they've always been. And, and the thing is, is that he's batting eighth. So no matter what he does, in the National League, it's very, very difficult to earn a whole lot of fantasy value batting eighth. You're not going to steal bases, you're not going to score a whole lot of runs, and, and you're going to get 120 fewer plate appearances than the guys at the top of the order. So... 
Wong is a strictly NL-only guy and a deep mix guy. On the same point, you say the metric indicates Houston's Tyler White might be playing himself right out of his big league slot. What's going on with Tyler White? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't draft him because I liked White going into the season. Uh, I was a little concerned that he was going to be a DH because DH is such a fungible position where teams could just play the hot hitter, and, and so his playing time wasn't as secure. Uh, it's a good thing I didn't end up drafting him. He's striking out way too often, which is strange because he, he doesn't swing and miss that often. So I, I think it's that he's just not aggressive enough and he, he hasn't really swung enough at pitches inside the zone, which obviously if the pitcher is throwing a pitch in the zone and you're not swinging at it, that's just a called strike, and, and that's pretty silly to just watch that ball go by. So I think that's what's hurting him. Obviously he hasn't homered yet. It's been like 80 at-bats already. And the Astros just have a whole lot of depth uh, on their major league roster and in the farm. Probably the best hitter in the entire minor leagues, Jordan Alvarez, is still sitting there. He's obliterating minor league pitching, and it's only a matter of time before they make the switch and he becomes their DH. And finally, Mike, uh, when we're talking about your Rotographs articles, you had one on Wednesday uh, looking at a couple of hitters who might be available in mixed leagues and should be looked at. First of these, the promoted uh, J.P. Crawford in Seattle. Where's the upside with J.P. Crawford as you see it? I don't think there's a whole lot of upside. I think he's one of those underappreciated fantasy guys. Uh, Really, all I'm thinking is maybe 10 homers, 10 steals, but he's got a whole lot more value in OBP leagues. He's always posted strong walk rates in the minors, and and that's important, especially coming from a, a middle infield position where most guys aren't big walkers. So I really like him in OBP leagues, and I have him in our Tower Wars league. Uh, and in batting average leagues, I, I think he'll be kind of replacement level in a, in a shallower mixed league. Uh, you know, 10 homers, 10 steals, I, I think is basically the best you could expect. But you never know. I mean, guys keep coming up from the minors and, and showing a lot more power than they ever did in the, the majors. And, and I think he's going to get an extended look. Uh, clearly, Tim Beckham, because of his slump, is now just uh, a utility guy. So Crawford should get a long leash. And you made a note about another Kansas City reliever, Scott Barlow, with regard to the still unstable closer situation in Kansas City. I have Ian Kennedy on my fantasy baseball invitational team. I have Jake Diekman on my tout team. What does Scott Barlow bring to the Kansas City closer role that these guys and Richard Lovelady, another guy, don't? Well, Lovelady and Diekman are lefties, and traditionally, lefties have not usually been the full-time closer. Yes, nowadays, they're, they're coming in on a matchups perspective, and, and they might earn a couple of saves, but usually it's the right-hander. If there's going to be one closer, it's going to be the right-hander. And uh, Ian Kennedy's usage has been odd. I mean, I know today's game, he uh, came in, I think it was like a 17 to nothing game, and he gave up a couple of runs. So he hasn't really been used in the type of role that you're like, all right, he's definitely the closer. It seems like that closer role is still who the heck knows. It's totally up for grabs. Anybody can get that next save. Uh, Before today, Kennedy's skills have been excellent. Uh, I think good enough to hold a closer role if they wanted to use him that way, which I think would be silly. Since he's been a starter, he can go multiple innings. It wouldn't make sense to use him as a closer. Barlow has posted solid skills, and, and you can't really say that for many other righties in that bullpen. So I think he has as good a chance as any to get that next save opportunity. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. And Mike, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players who might be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Let's start with some boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners for one reason or another. Let's start in the American League with a boon hitter. Yonder Alonso. Um, for the most part, he's been a disappointment, uh, but that's mostly BABIP-driven. And everything else really has been either in line or improved from prior years. His, his strikeout and walk rates are better than last year. His uh, fly ball pull, pull percentage is up now for a fourth straight year to a career high, which is huge because hitting home runs on pulled fly balls is much easier than hitting them on balls that are hit to the opposite field. So I think that's a really good sign for his home run per fly ball ratio moving forward. Uh, and everything else looks good. So I think it's only a matter of time before the hits start to fall in. He still is hitting in the middle of the White Sox order. Obviously, it's not a great order, but hitting in the middle of any order is a good thing. So uh, I think he probably right now would come cheap if if you have uh, an issue at corner or first base. And and I I wouldn't advise against um, trading for him. Uh, So if you are an owner, I wouldn't drop him. And uh, I think he'll have a much improved rest of the season. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Uh, here's another guy I'll probably get boos from, from his owners or former owners, and that's Ian Desmond. I own him, uh, unfortunately, in a bunch of leagues, and I've held on. There are a lot of positives here that suggest that he is going to improve uh, rapidly. Uh, his fly ball percentage, which has really plummeted in, in previous years, it's nearly doubled to a career high. Uh, plus, his ex-WOBA, which is a stat cast metric, is significantly higher than his WOBA. So I think that everything is going to get better real quick. Uh, as long as they keep running him out there, that's the only real concern, is that if he doesn't pull out of this slump, he's going to lose a lot of playing time. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez. Uh, same skills as last year, excellent strikeout rate, good enough walk rate. Uh, his Sierra which is a, a Fangraphs metric, basically uh, an ERA estimator. It's more than a run below his ERA. Uh, that strikeout rate has come with a jump in swinging strike percentage, which is uh, a good sign that maybe the strikeout rate has more room to run. And it's all about the 364 BABIP, which is keeping his ERA high. That obviously will come down and bring his ERA along with it. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? I like Pablo Lopez. Again, moving back to Sierra, that's two runs below his ERA. He's got a double-digit swinging strike percentage, uh, his fastball velocity up a mile an hour. He's got a 50% ground ball rate, good control, and he he calls a pitcher-friendly park home, so that's good. Obviously, the offensive support isn't necessarily going to be there, but he's in a good park for pitchers. Mike Podhorzer's Boons, uh, Yonder Alonso of the White Sox, Ian Desmond of Colorado, Eduardo Rodriguez of Boston, and Pablo Lopez of Miami. Let's move over to the Baines now, Mike. These are guys about whom you think listeners might be a little bit cautious. Uh, again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter who you think could be a Bane for his owners? Is there anybody who's been a bigger mystery than Byron Buxton over the last couple of years? I, I think it would be a challenge to come up with somebody who has been more mysterious because we, we still have no idea what he's capable of. And this year he's become a completely different hitter. He's hitting fly balls 52% of the time, getting back to that fly ball rate. Byron Buxton is not the kind of hitter you want 52% fly balls from. You want him hitting maybe 30% ground uh, fly balls. He does have power, but not that much power to take advantage of all those fly balls. 
along with those fly balls, he's hitting a ton of pop-ups. And yet his batting average on balls in play, his BABIP is 355, which doesn't make any sense. So I think once that BABIP regresses because of the high fly ball and pop-up rate, his batting average, his OBP, and his stolen base opportunities are going to plunge. And he's not even showing any home run power. His fly ball hard percentage is 18%, which is less than half the league average. So he's really skating on thin ice, and uh, his owners are should really be concerned right now. In the National League, who's a hitter who could be a bane? So it's actually the guy who has been taking some playing time away from Ian Desmond, and that's Rymel Tapia, who has been touted as a sleeper in, in recent years, and for good reason. But so far this year, I think it's been a complete mirage. 5% walk rate, 31% strikeout rate, which is terrible. That's even worse than Ian Desmond, and Ian Desmond's marks aren't very good. But that comes with a 397 BABIP, and even in Colorado, that's, that's not going to be sustained. Uh, his power isn't going to be there. His fly ball pull percentage is only 4%, below average hard percentage. So uh, I think his uh, offense is going to come crashing down, and it's going to give Desmond uh, a better opportunity to keep his job. Over to the mound again. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? CC Sabathia, my favorite stat, against Sierra, nearly two runs higher than his ERA. Lowest strikeout rate since 2004, lowest swinging strike percentage of his entire career, his highest walk percentage and highest fly ball percentage of his career. Right now, a 183 BABIP and a 93% strand rate. Both of those numbers are going to significantly regress toward the league average, and his ERA is going to jump above four very quickly. And finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane. So Zach Davies, again getting back to Sierra, three runs higher than ERA. Not two runs like the other guys that I was telling you about, but three runs higher. This has got to be one of the luckiest pitchers uh, over the last couple of years. Terrible strike, uh, strikeout rate. Terrible swinging strike percentage, and he's doing it all with a suppressed home run per fly ball rate and a super high strand rate. None of those are going to continue, especially in a, a, a very hitter-friendly ballpark in Milwaukee. Yeah, I was going to say the last guy you want uh, in Milwaukee is a guy with a, a elevated home run per fly ball rate or a, or a home run per fly ball that's due for correction. It's not not the place for for that, that's for sure. Uh, Mike Bodhorzer's Baines, Byron Buxton of Minnesota, Raymel Tapia of Colorado, CC Sabathia of the Yankees, Zach Davies of Milwaukee. Uh, Mike, tell our listeners where they can read more from Mike Bodhorzer. Sure. So uh, I continue to be uh, a four week uh, a four per week publisher at Rotographs, which is on Fangraphs.com. And of course, my Projecting X 2.0 ebook is always available, uh, ProjectingX.com. And uh, of course, uh, it's no longer really valuable, but my projections uh, you can also find from ProjectingX.com uh, next year in 2020. Uh, they're still available if you want to take a peek. All right, Mike, uh, thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, great information as always, great analysis, a lot of fun talking to you as well, and maybe we'll be able to swing some kind of a deal in Tout Wars American League. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.
Mike Podhorzer writes regularly at Rotographs, which you can find on the Fangraphs website. When we come back, it's our weekly Talk with Todd. That's Todd Zola, and he's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. I gambled on, on other sports other than baseball. I never gambled on baseball, but uh, I think I'm uh, being punished pretty severely. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, PD. In the Z Files uh, this week... And last week, you looked at players who have over or underperformed your preseason projections. We're going to talk about the hitters this week, uh, but first, why now? Um, it, it, it was it kind of dovetailed with the uh, the NFBC is is having some drafts this coming weekend, Memorial Day weekend. They've already started. They're calling it a second chance contest. So it just it it, it was it, it was stimulated by that. Just players that have. That I that have changed my original expectation. I didn't want to lose readership by calling it, you know, draft these players different in the NFBC drafts. So I I tried to make it more general so that anybody it would apropos to any league. But it, it's the time of year where it's still early as far as our changes real. But we've had enough of the season go by that I can feel I can go back and begin to gauge or judge my expectations because you know to make trades and to assess our teams we have to have a uh, an updated opinion on our players and, and our opponents players so we're far enough into the season where i think you can make some judgments you know with the asterisk that it's we don't know for sure right and you made a point in the column of saying that you know, these are going to be players that you're looking at who are significant type players because uh, a $10 increase for a first round player is only five or six spots. And at the lower reaches, it can be five or six rounds or 10 rounds if a guy just picks up a $10 difference. So uh, what we're looking at is the the bigger name players, to be frank. And these are guys who are going to figure in uh, trades from here to the end, especially in dump trades and keeper leagues. Let's start with one of the biggest overperformers, Todd, Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers. I mean, I know he went second round in my uh, fantasy baseball invitational league, I think, but Cody Bellinger, you know, might be the top performing player in all of baseball this year so far. Yeah, and, you know, he, I I was trying to, I wanted to look up uh, when he actually went in the spring because I I posted a Twitter poll, I think it's going to be interesting to compare the ADP of, of the first round, well, the whole ADP of players, and Bellinger's have been a top five pick in the early NFBC drafts, and he was second or third round. I mean, so he was still a, a, a talented player, but coming into the season, he was coming off a playoff where he was sitting versus left-handers, and quite frankly, looked lost at the plate, striking out left and right, and well, <laughs> against lefties and righties, and there was, everybody knows the talent. Sometimes we forget how young he is. So coming in, weren't exactly sure how much Dave Roberts was going to use him. Was he going to platoon? Was he not going to platoon? So we know what kind of start he got off to. The question now is, how sustainable is it? We've talked a lot about contact rate being one of the leading indicators. Bellinger is striking out a lot less. He's handling lefties. Now he probably won't continue to at the pace he's doing it. But because he is handling lefties, he's in the lineup against lefties, which helps the counting stats. So... I don't know whether he becomes a first, a top five pick over this over the next four months. I suppose is debatable, but.
But I think the improvements are real. I think he's a first-rounder now. I think the improvements are real. Contact is much, much, much better, and the counting stats should go up. So I have no qualms if – I mean, it's only moving around. But like we kind of – in the introduction, as you mentioned, one round from the second to the first is a $15, $18 jump. That's kind of – that's huge. So even to move one round at that top of the order is a significant increase in production. But I think it's real, and I think it's sustainable to a, to a large extent. He's not going to hit 400, but I think he's going to continue to be one of the better fantasy players. Assuming he can stay in the lineup for the whole rest of the year, he's got 17 home runs so far and 170 uh, at-bats. So if that's ten, one home run every 10 at-bats, if you prorate that out to 550 at-bats, you're looking at a 55 home run season. And I wonder about the sustainability of that, especially when I look at his fly ball percentage, which has dropped from 47% in 2017 to 40% last year, down to 36% this year. His line drive rate is way, way up, so that's good, and his ground ball rate is down. So the profile is, if anything, a little more interesting because of all those line drives and the fewer ground balls. But can this guy get to 55 home runs or anywhere near it with a 36% fly ball rate? I I don't think so. Um, but then, you know, even when he falls off, I still expect him to be one of the top fantasy players because he's, he's, he's running as well. He always ran a little, but I, I haven't done a study on it. It's one of those narratives that I have, but seems to me when, pl- when when players who have some speed are in the midst of a good season, they run more. I think it's the attitude. I think it's the mindset. I think it's the confidence. It's it's, it's all that sort of thing. Because stolen bases is more than just skill. You have to want to do it. And I think sometimes your mindset, you just want to do it more. And uh, he, he, I think that's, that's sort of what's happening with, with Bellinger. But, you know, the fly ball rates, I, I, I looked at it too. It's, it's It depends on where you look, different sources. Especially when line drive goes up, it just depends on how the that site uh, measures them. And we're still using a lot of subjectivity. Hopefully soon enough with stat casts and whatnot, there'll be cutoffs and we'll have some more objective cutoffs for home run, uh, sorry, for, for fly balls and, and line drives. But I think he's lofting the ball. With the, gr- with the ground ball rate being low, he's lofting the ball more. And the extra contact makes up for the, well, not makes up, but helps mitigate the uh, the drop in fly balls, so no, he's. I don't think he's gonna you know crack 50. I don't know if anybody will crack 50, but I think he will be among the leaders the rest of the way. Well, that's an interesting point that you make in that when we talk about fly ball percentages, usually what we're talking about is the percentages of balls in play that are those things, not the percentages of times at the at the plate that are those things. And to me, that's a bit confusing and actually a suboptimal way of presenting the data. But uh, And I've talked about that at length here at Baseball HQ Radio and written about it at the site. I think it should just all be how many times at the plate did you hit a fly ball? Not how many times of the balls you hit were they fly balls because then that buries to a certain extent the question of how many times did you put the ball into play. Right. And and I think you make an excellent point when a guy all of a sudden is putting 10 or 12% more balls into play, that offsets a lot of declines in the various uh, percentages and stuff. And really it increases the value of, of the line drive percentage of 34% because now it's 34% of 80% of his plate appearances instead of what it was last year, uh, 20% of eight, of 70% of his plate appearances. That's a huge difference. Right, and if you want, sticking with the 34%, that's not going to sustain. I mean, it's going to drop into the, you know, the mid, if not low 20s. So a lot of that power will be 
the, the power sustainability, what happens to that 14% that, or whatever that, that falls? Are they going to be grounders? Are they going to be fly balls? So they're, they're, again, not, I don't think you'll hit 50, but I don't think the power drop-off is going to be huge. And the theory says that hard-hit ground balls will help his uh, BABIP, which will indirectly influence his batting average. So if right. the line drives fall off, they're still it's not going to be catastrophic for his uh, batting average. Uh, and I don't know how many line drives, as they're calculated by uh, Baseball Info Solutions, are actually home runs. We tend to think that it'll be mostly those uh, fly ball type line drives that, mm-hmm. that make it to be home runs. So one way or another, it looks like Cody Bellinger's uh, full value for what he's doing in the question of sustainability. And I'll ask you just point blank, our projection at Baseball HQ for the balance of the season is 26 home runs, 13 bags. You take the over or under on either of those. Hmm, I like those numbers because that's 43 homers. And I, uh, I, I, like, I like those numbers. So, I mean, um, will I take, you know, gun to head? Will I t- I'll, I'll take... I'll take the. Those are such good numbers. I'm not even sure what I have. Um, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll take the over, but it's just because why not? I, I honestly think those are, and I think that's those are right around what I have as well. Those just seem to me to be very very solid expectations. Actually, you know, I will look. I have it with me. I will as we as you. I will look it up and find out and, and go by what I'm using because I'm actually doing my update right now. So I'll tell you exactly what I'm expecting from my uh, from my goofy little update, and that is I've got I've got 28 homers, so I'll take the over on that, and I got 10 steals, so I think I'll take your under on that. But still pretty close. Uh, owners had yeah. hope this year for Houston outfielder Michael Brantley, but certainly nobody expected this kind of performance. What's your take on Michael Brantley of the Astros? Yeah, you know I I, I think we. At this point, I think it's it's not uh, it's not you know next level analysis saying we don't have to worry about the injury, especially the shoulder, uh, as as much. But you know, Park it's it's one of those examples. Sometimes you know, Park factors don't always apply linearly or or, or proportionately to every player. You know, we we got to do something. So when a, a, a player moves ballparks, we that's what we apply. But it comes with an asterisk in that we just we don't know. The, the park factor is an average park factor. It, it took what ac- uh, accounted for in the entire team, not imagi- individual players. So uh, that what it actually does is that makes what Brantley's doing even more impressive because progressive field was better for lefty power than Minute Maid Park. So um, I, mean, I, like, I like what he's doing. There are... There are signs that he's been a little bit lucky, but I don't think the fall is going to be too, too hard. I think my main reason for changing the evaluation was I was probably too pessimistic in terms of injury at the beginning. So I discounted him too much for health reasons, even though, as I just explained, I think we the smart play would have been to ignore the shoulder and to, to give him nearly full-time run. But Houston also likes to give people days off and the whatnot. So I think the main reason being, you know, the performance is a little bit better. I see some luck. I think it may come back down. But I'm not docking him any injury time. I think he'll be in the lineup nearly every day. Uh, the other the other issue is we know what, what a lot have been talking about with, with prospects calling up. 
Houston has got two of the top outfield prospects in the game, and Jordan Alvarez, well, left in the game, and Jordan Alvarez and Kyle Tucker, everybody's, you know, the rich get richer, right? So everybody's expecting them to come up. So had Bradley faltered any, there was a, you know, a plausible pathway for someone else to take the time, and that needs to be factored into initial expectations. I don't think we do that enough. I don't think we consider the downside enough when we do original playing time, etc. So at this point, even with Alvarez on the verge of a call-up, supposedly, and Tucker, I'm just confident Brantley will be in there. He's sitting in the third and fourth spot. You don't rest your, you know, you don't sit your cleanup hitter at this point. So I'm more confident we're going to see Brantley on the field nearly every day. And uh, another guy who's a poster child for great contact rates, but in his case, unlike Bellinger, it's not a huge increase that he's at 90%. He was at 89 last year. He's been at 90, 91, 88 in in years past. And the other thing about Michael Brantley that is really an eye-opener for me is when you go back and look at his hard contact index, uh, which is a 100-level scale for average in in baseball, he's at 139 this year, so 39% more hard contact largely driven by the amount of contact rather than by the amount of hardness. But uh, over his last six or seven years, he's been way above average every year, and that's just continuing, which is a good sign if he can stay on the field. Yeah, you know, he's one of those players that it's it's a bit underappreciated in fantasy because he doesn't pop in any single category, but he's just really steady across the board, kind of like Andrew Benintendi perhaps in that, Depending upon your roster con- construct, you know he, you may not realize how good he is. He just, he, uh, although Ben Attendee's down a little bit so far in power, et cetera. But that's the sort of that's the profile of player where, you know, he's just very, very good in all the categories. But because he doesn't pop in steals or homers, he's not perceived as being the fantasy stud that he's been. Todd, I drafted Jonathan VR in two of my leagues, and so far so good. I've been pretty pleased. Should I be optimistic or pessimistic for the rest of the year, though? I think you should be optimistic, and and I I've, I've talked about VR. So I didn't write a, a ton about him in this particular piece because I had written this previously in a playing time piece. I think everybody was just too, uh, and I say everybody because when I did my original piece, I used HQ, baseball HQ, Rotowire, and my own projections, and we're all about the same. We were all low. And what we did was we factored in an injury season and another season where he didn't start at the beginning, and we just we kind of made this season's projections to to match those two, and and we didn't take a little bit harder of look and say who's going to play second instead of him, whose balls are we going to use? There's you know there's, he's not an aging veteran, just kind of a placeholder. Who's Baltimore going to use instead? And I think we all should have given him more playing time. So that's. That's the, the the deal here. Is is VR should have gotten a lot more playing time. Now the problem with that, and I'm not saying necessarily this is what what HQ or or, or, or RotoWire did. I'll I'll cop to doing it myself. Is that when I did give him full playing time between the steals and the power, he was you know a, a second round player, and I'm thinking there's just no way he's going to be a second round player. So, I, I, which is a huge mistake, and I talk about it a little bit about that mindset in the, the piece we're discussing, and even more so in the one that's going to come out uh, soon as far as pitchers go, and that's trusting your system versus uh, what you want to do subjectively. And I, I think everybody would like their analyst to, to add some subjectivity to the, to, the, to the objective engine, 
so long as we get it right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think it's, it's kind of a fine line there. But I just, you know, I looked at it because couldn't, 20 homers, 50 steals. That's the, that's the upside. That's not the projection. So um, I think you should be fine, or Villar should be fine. The only concern, and I think at this point you're overmanaging, but it's in the back of your head, he could get traded to a contender where he falls into more of a utility role. That's maybe the only downside of it, but I don't I don't think you want to manage your team based on that. One negative against that is he's a terrible fielder. So how many teams will pick him up to play multiple positions when he's not in, you know, that means he's going to be poor at multiple positions, not just poor at one. One of the interesting things about VR's season this year and in some other past seasons as well, where he was a $40 player, I think, a few years ago, uh, and it was a different... Uh, it was a different kind of profile then. He had an 826 OPS back in 2016 when he had that huge season. And this year his OPS is 681, but he's still generating value because of the counting stats, especially the bags. And uh, that's one of those kind of things that could continue. It's not 100% certain. There are there are flaws in the in the construct here, but overall, as long as he plays, he's probably going to produce because he's going to run and hit himself some home runs and that kind of thing. Yep, exactly, and it's sort of, you, you know, if we were talking about a power player, a power hitter, what I'd say is he's not as penalized because there's not as many steals, so the fact he doesn't steal doesn't hurt him as much. Uh, it, with, with VR, because there's so few steals and he is running, those steals are even more valuable. So it, it's kind of a, it, there's, a there's a, a disparity in the narrative, but they're both, but they're both true. Um, so... But yeah, he'll he'll the, the running he still he's not running near the pace that he ran in as you mentioned 2016 when he had 62 bags, but he still worked close to one third of the way. So he's he's pacing for around 30, and that's a good number in today's in today's day. And again, you know, pacing who knows what he'll end up with, but he's on the on pace for around 15 homers, you know, 15 homers and 30 steals. That's actually lower than what my projection would have been. Had he, you know, had it's below my projection. It's below my original projection. But because I'm not docking him plenty of time, he's played 50 games. We just mentioned we're close to a third of the way through, which is 54 games. So he's played nearly every day. So uh, maybe he gets hurt. I don't know. But um, I don't think we can expect it. I think he'll be out there every day. And when you, you know, we say he's pacing for, you know, he's got nine steals. We know how the steals are. He, He faces... A team like the White Sox that can't that can't control the running game, he gets four steals in a weekend. Suddenly he's up to 13 or 14, and now you multiply by three, and he's well over 40 steals. So the on pace thing, you know, especially with stolen bases, is a little bit you know tepid or not tepid, but just t- tenuous. Baseball HQ has him projected for 17 and 33 by the end of the season. I think that's about right. Uh, another yeah. huge surprise has been Josh Bell of the Pirates, and you asked in your analysis, what was I thinking? What did you mean? Well, what I did was uh, I. it was more of I, I kind of played on the fact that I had JB, Justin Bohr, ranked ahead of Josh Bell, JB. So in the Battle of JBs, I chose poorly. Yeah, Bell is probably this year's poster boy for the launch angle revolution. He's always been a a formidable presence, you know, a kind of a a big a big a big guy, strong guy, and it's why isn't he hitting more homers? Well, cuz he's a gap to gap hitter in PNC Park, one of the, you know, power suppressing one of the 
most power-suppressing venues in the league. So at this point, we're just accepting the fact that he'll be Mark Grace or John Olerud or someone like that who'll who you want more from your first baseman, but just accept the fact you you know Eric Hosmer, you're going to get what you're going to get, a couple you know 20 homers, 95 RBI, and and that's what you're going to get, and just you know you're not paying as much. Well, he's 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 uh, the launch angle is working. He's just tattooing everything, and I see some people talking about this NFBC draft where they they think that he's going to be overdrafted. He might be. But I think what he's doing is real, and I think it's sustainable. And the question is, what's he going to do next year? Because the data, we're still, we're still in the infancy of this whole stat cast thing and, and measuring and the whatnot. But one thing that I have seen on the, on the players that I have looked at is within the year, they tend to keep the gains, they maintain the gains, but they give some of them back the following year. So while I'm all in on Josh Bell for the next four months, wouldn't shock me if I'm a little bit more bearish on him than the market next year because they're going to have the recency bias of the entirety of the 2019 season where I'm going to figure history, short history, but history says he's going to give back some of those gains and I may not have him quite as high. I'll have him higher than had he not had the breakout, but I may not have him as high as those that look more as, uh, at the past year. So to me, this is in keeper leagues especially – this is the time to jump on Josh Bell because he may give a little bit back next year. Yeah, I think that's a bias that we all have, and I don't think it's entirely misplaced when we look at Josh Bell's historical record, or any player, but looking at Josh Bell as an example, we see uh, a contact rate that's actually off a little bit. His walk rate's actually off a little bit from last year, but his OPS is up 400 points or 350 <laughs> points. His hard contact index is up from barely league average last year to 145 this year. He's 50% better than the league at doing this. And I understand that things happen and they change their swing planes and all of these kind of things, but they, I don't know how you increase your bat speed that much to generate that much extra contact, especially that much extra hard contact when your contact rate has actually declined. So hard contact is a combination. We basically just multiply hard hit rate by contact rate and we come up with a, a number and then, and then index it out to the league. So if his actual contact rate, if you separate that out, is down, how much how much has his hard hit rate soared? And it must be a lot, just inferring from the arithmetic. And to me, when I see those kind of massive increases, I'm always suspicious about sustainability. Not to mention, he's a switch hitter. So I haven't broken down is 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 one side of the plate. This massive increase is it dominated by one over the other, but he has to maintain two swings. And that's going to be double the pro, you know, double the uh, double the difficulty. Well, he does seem to be doing better from the left uh, left side of the plate, uh, hitting against right-handers. He's got about a 400, 380 point OPS advantage on that side. And uh, let's switch over to some disappointments. Uh, I'd like to start with Malik Smith of the Mariners. He was going pretty high in some of the drafts. I was in fifth round or so as people tried to, what they thought they were doing was anchoring down a, a sure thing for their stolen base uh, foundation. And instead he started so slowly, he got sent to the minors. Uh, he's back now, but how likely is he to rebound to anywhere near what we were expecting on the stolen base front and on his batting average or on base uh, mark as well? Yeah, the, the problem with with Malik Smith, and I think this is a problem uh, intrinsic to all players who don't rely on hitting the ball hard, 
is they're just they're 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 do more variance. They're going to have more variance because they're you know if they hit a ground ball, it, it can't be right at someone. It has to the, the infielder has to move a little. You know he's fast, Malik Smith obviously, but uh, I just uh, you know I don't think we can get too confident. One year or two years even, he was able to maintain, or not just he, but any speedy ball player is able to maintain a high batting average of ball in play just based on speed. It, it, the hard hit rate is is terrible, and that's just the way he is. And I think you know I, I'm going to take a look at my uh, my own engine over the over the course of the off season to find out if I'm over judging a lot of these. You know, if I need to incorporate somehow. Better incorporate hard hit rate. I mean, I do, and it does temper batting average and balls in play. But I wonder if I need to my my own expected BABIP, if you will. I need to look into that a little bit more because, and it may just be Malik Smith is an outlier, and that's me what I may find out, or I may find out that I need to adjust. And 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 I've been I've been wrong on a few of these uh, low hard hit rate. You know, in other words, a lot of softly softly hit balls. So. Smith just didn't have the batted ball luck or, or even, you know, profile that we wanted early on. If he's not getting on base, he can't steal. He's now back up again. You know, if he's playing, he's going to run, but he's it's, he's still not looking at the numbers. He's, he still doesn't appear to be getting on base. He doesn't walk. He's it's, it's Since he's been back in the lineup, it's, it hasn't been that, I don't know, not, in, not encouraging. So if you were hoping that, okay... The steals are going to come back, and I was one of them that said recently. I don't remember if I said it with you on on, on our talk or not. If given a choice between Malik Smith and Oscar Mercado in the recent Fabaganza for steals, give me Malik Smith because he's proven he can do it. Well, that 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 um that's not proving to be a very prescient uh, analysis of the Mercado isn't going nuts either. And now he may be hurt a little bit, but in the games that he's been back, Smith has not shown that he's going to be able to you know rebound anywhere near where we thought he would well just briefly touching on mercado i I picked him up a a few weeks before he got called up in tout wars and i actually talk about that in in master notes on this edition of baseball hq radio but uh oscar mercado i was watching in one of his early uh, i think the game on sunday right before he was active on my roster and he stole second so easily it was ridiculous but he overslid the bag and so he got a caught stealing but it, it was he went in so fast that he just couldn't hang on to the bag with his with his hand. Uh, Getting back to Malik Smith, though, uh, I think, you know, this is one of those situations where maybe we engaged in a little preseason wishful thinking. Uh, I was just looking at his hard, medium, soft rates uh, at Fangraphs, and his hard rate in uh, for his career is like 2021 around there, and that's what it is this year. His medium hit rate, 51, 52, 53 around there, and his soft was around 29%. So last year, all of those things shifted for the better. The medium stayed the same, but his hard hit rate shot up by six points and his soft fell. And this year, it just went right back to where it was before with a few more mediums in there. Isn't it? Isn't maybe one of the object lessons here, Todd, when you see a guy who has a big increase in these kind of core skills, the ability to hit the ball hard, and he's been muddling around 20%, and all of a sudden he shoots up to 27 either find a legitimate explanation for it or be uh, skeptical. Yeah, now that's one of the reasons why we're using three-year 
or most people use three years average. I think HQ may even go back more than three years, depending on the player, is f to get a baseline. So that 27 will get tempered with the 20s before. So maybe we're projecting 23 or in that neighborhood, a weighted average. So that takes care of some of it. But if if you that's that's a you know, weighted average. Maybe that's why the number that people throw around for projection accuracy is 70 percent, because that that's you know, that's the weighted average. Is he 20 percent or is he 27? There was one year of 27, and every other year is 20. Of you know, all right, so we're saying he's 23 or four because we're averaging it. But what if he's one or the other, and he he is now he is 20, and that was just not it was just an outlier year. He doesn't retain any of it. So I think some of that is is part of it. But I you know some of it too. You know, 27 isn't very good in, in general. Even 27 is not very good. So we're he's still you know the the extra hits or the the improvement. I don't know if it was due to the 7% hard hit rate or that the soft and medium hits just happened to be placed where his speed got him on base. Now, the issue going on now is he's fanning. He's, 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 he's whipped. He's been up since the 16th, and he struck out in all but he – didn't, he didn't strike out in his first game. He struck out at least once in every game. One of the times, he's striking out three times. So for Guy, all you want to do is hit the ball on the ground and run fast – you got to make the contact, and he's he's, you know, he's given away one or two at bats a game. It's not going to help. That that's not going to get him on base. So uh, the biggest the bigger concern I have isn't maybe the luck neutralizing or, or whatever is he's not hitting the ball. He's not making the contact that you want from somebody of that ilk. Eighteen percent strikeout rate last year, thirty this year. That's a huge yeah. increase. And again, absent any kind of explanation, you really are kind of left scratching your head. And what's going to be interesting, I think, is you mentioned the NFBC second chance leagues that are going to be drafting this week. And I'm very curious to see how far Malik Smith falls, or even if he gets drafted at this point, because right. people have to be very suspicious. And finally, my favorite, uh, Jose Ramirez of Cleveland, was my high-priced foundation piece in two leagues, and of course, many, many other leagues among our listeners and in, in the general environment. The foundation started showing some cracks last year in the second half, and now it looks like the entire basement's going to fall in while we're in it kind of deal. Uh, are, are we right or are we wrong? What's the analysis here for uh, Jose Ramirez? Man, I wish I knew, Patrick. I wish I could help you out, buddy. But So coming into the season, uh, our colleague Clay Link, and I'm sure others, but I just happen to know that Clay talked about it from Rotowire, did a little bit of under-the-hood analysis, and Ramirez couldn't hit a breaker. He couldn't hit anything with a wrinkle. He uh, the second half of the year he couldn't hit a curve. He couldn't hit a slider. It was it was just that was that was it. And once that you know easier said than done, pitchers still have to execute, you know. But but he that that was his issue towards the end of last season and into the playoffs. Well, all right. So let's he's he's having off to another rough start. The the scouting report got out. Teams must just be throwing everything with a wrinkle. Nope. This year he can't handle heat. This so far this year he's just terrible against fastballs, and he's reasonable against sliders and curves. So just as you think you know the answer, he changes the question. So I don't know. I I, I wish I knew what was wrong with Maris. I I can't I put him under the hood. I can't be next level analysis and point to Statcast, point to this, point to that. All I can say is there's just so much curious stuff going on that to me he's a risk. So I don't know how to quantify it. 
It's just more of a uh, more of a subjective. I don't want to touch him just because I don't know what's going on. But that also means in a, in a second he can turn it around and as he did last year and just just smoke the, the the middle part of the season. He started out slow last year and he ended slow last year, but he was just nails the the the, the middle three months. So maybe that's what happens again. I'm not I'm not a believer in first half, second half, or May's a bad month, or July's your best month sort of thing. I think it's happenstance. But the point being, I, I, I can't point to why he's having a rough season, which means I can't, you know, categorically dismiss the fact that he'll turn it around either. Yeah, and the thing about having a guy at $42 is either you wait it out and hope for the best, which is, I think, what I have to do. Uh, in both leagues, I could trade him, but I think at this point, if you try to trade a $42 player, you're going to be lucky to get 15 back uh, because there's just nobody who's going to be that interested. There's going to be somebody who'll pay $15 to make the bet on a comeback, but that doesn't help me. If I get a $15 player back for what I was into a slot, I was expecting $40 or somewhere near it in production. Real interesting stuff, Todd, is always i'm really looking forward to reading about pitching this week i think it comes out on friday at rotowire in the z files great work great stuff great talking to you and i'll catch up with you again in a week have a good week patrick have, uh well yeah well i can i can wish you a happy memorial day i suppose and i will wish you a happy victoria <laughs> day which was last uh, last weekend so we can all, all be right. even <laughs> thank you todd zola writes for masters ball espn and rotowire and he appears every week at baseball hq radio when we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, pitcher matchups, and master notes. Alex, Greg, and I all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, one, one, pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have weekend pitcher matchups and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Colorado relief pitcher Jairo Diaz. Talked about him a moment ago with Nick, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Back in 2015, February 20th, 2015 to be exact, our own Ryan Bloomfield said this. A deeper name to tuck away, especially in dynasty leagues, is Colorado relief pitcher Hydro Diaz. As his success at AA Arkansas in 2014 suggests there's plenty of upside. Indeed, Hydro Diaz produced a very respectable 237 ERA in 21 games for the Rockies in 2015. However... A lot has happened since then. The following season, Hydro Diaz underwent Tommy John surgery and was forced to miss the entire 2016 Rockies campaign. Yet despite beginning a promising comeback bid for 2017, Hydro Diaz was thrown another curveball when his wife was diagnosed with cancer. 
She passed away in October 2017, our condolences, leaving Hydro Diaz to care for the couple's one-year-old daughter. After spending most of 2018 rehabbing, it looks like Hydro Diaz, who turns 28 this weekend, happy birthday by the way, has finally completed his long road back to the Major League mound. Certainly it hasn't been an easy journey. That's why Hydro Diaz, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Yet although some may say that Hydro Diaz has a lot to prove on the mound in 2019, maybe he's already proved his resiliency and determination to succeed. Certainly his intangibles appear to be intact. But what about his tangibles? Going back to Ryan Bloomfield's 2015 comment about how Hydro Diaz's success at AA Arkansas suggests there's plenty of upside, let's update the upside. Through 16 games for AAA Albuquerque in 2019, Hydro Diaz has produced a .45 ERA with 22 punchouts and only 6 free passes. That translates to a command ratio of 3.6 strikeouts to walks, where we at BaseballHQ.com believe that baseball's best pitchers produce command ratios of 3 or higher, and so far in 2019, Hydro Diaz qualifies. However, we at BaseballHQ.com also recognize that 16 games is a very, very small sample size. In other words, don't expect Hydro Diaz to maintain his .45 ERA at the big league level after his May 22nd call-up. Then again, Hydro Diaz, as shown by his minuscule .45 ERA, has only allowed one earned run in AAA prior to his call-up, and that was way back in his first game on April 4th. He's been locked in ever since. And with Wade Davis suffering a left oblique strain, maybe you should be locked in on acquiring Colorado right-hander Hydro Diaz as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend pitcher matchups. And here with some key weekend showdowns, including the Sunday marquee matchup with San Diego sensation Chris Paddock in Toronto to face the veteran ground baller Marcus Stroman, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. If you need any more reasons to load your lineups with twins, there are two at Guaranteed Rate Park on the south side of Chicago this weekend. White Sox starters Manny Banuelos and Dylan Covey have two of the three worst matchup ratings for the weekend, so twins hitters should have happy hunting. For our marquee matchup, let's go to the ninth best matchup rating of 137. We'll pay our first visit to one of the up-and-coming Padres young guns and feature Friars phenom Chris Paddock. The 23-year-old right-hander travels across the continent to Canada where he'll face Toronto's 28-year-old right-hander Marcus Stroman. Stroman's matchup rating is 0.45. Rogers Center has a reputation as a hitter's park, but other than a plus 5% for walks, it's actually neutral. In a March 5 facts and flukes analysis, BaseballHQ.com's Derek Boyd dug into Stroman's early season success and concluded that although Stroman is bouncing back into fantasy relevance after a disastrous 2018, his skills couldn't sustain the level of success he enjoyed at the outset of 2019. Sure enough, after tossing three PQS doms in his first six starts, three of Stroman's five May starts have been PQS disasters. All three of those were at home. 
In his five April outings, Stroman had an ERA of 176, thanks to a strand rate of 83%. His expected ERA was nearly two runs higher at 355. And Stroman's April whip of 114 was not supported by his first pitch strike rate of just 56%. In May, Stroman's expected ERA is 440 and his whip is 171. Have you noticed how coy the Padres are about an innings limit for Paddock? That's because he's such an efficient pitcher, it's more like Paddock is on a pitch count limit than an innings limit. In six of his past seven starts, Paddock has gone at least six innings. His pitch counts, however, have ranged from just 83 to only 92. Paddock's lone PQS disaster did come on the road against the Dodgers, but two of his other three road starts were PQS dominant fours. Overall, Paddock has six PQS dominant outings in nine starts. He has benefited from a low hit rate of 21%, but Paddock's control rate of 1.9 walks per nine also helps with his minuscule whip of 076. Among pitchers with 40 innings or more, Paddock has Major League Baseball's best first pitch strike rate at 74%. Paddock's high strand rate of 80% contributes to a gap greater than one between his ERA of 193 and his expected ERA of 321. Paddock isn't perfect, but his BPV of 147 for his initial 51-inning Major League sample is quite impressive. Look for him to best the Blue Jays this Sunday. Our marquee mismatch is also on Sunday, and it's in Coors Field, no less. Baltimore brings baseball's most homer-prone pitching staff into baseball's fourth-most homer-friendly venue. The Orioles' 25-year-old right-hander David Hess has a matchup rating of minus 151, and 24-year-old Rockies' right-handed ace Herman Marquez has a matchup rating of 203. That's a matchup differential of 354 in favor of Marquez, whose nickname is Marquis. Hess leads Major League Baseball in home runs allowed with 17 in 45 innings pitched, over 9 starts and 10 games. Despite a hit rate of only 24%, Hess has a whip of 141 thanks to a control rate of 3.6 walks per nine and a first pitch strike rate of just 58%. All his unfortunate strand rate of 64% does is give Hess an expected ERA of 564, which is about a run lower than his actual ERA of 675. BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickrand summed it all up on April 20. Quote, he's not a guy that belongs on your roster, unquote. Marquez had a stellar season in 2018 highlighted by 230 strikeouts and a superlative BPV of 144. His 2019 BPV of 149 says Marquez is doing even better this year. He's improved his control rate from 2.6 walks per nine last season to 1.6 this season, increasing his first pitch strike rate from 65% to 68%. Marquez has lowered his whip from 120 to 111 and his expected ERA from 322 to 315. But as with any Rockies pitcher, the most meaningful comparison is not between last season and this season, it's between home and away. Marquez is close to elite outside of Coors Field and a bit more mediocre in the Mile High City. He's had six starts on the road, and this will be his sixth start at home. There are mile-wide differences for Marquez in batting average against, ERA, and whip. Opponents hit only 167 against Marquez at their parks, but 339 at his. Away from home, Marquez has an ERA of 208. At home, it's 534. 
On the road, Marquez has a whip of 074. In Colorado, it's 167. Just as Paddock isn't perfect, neither is Marquis Marquez, even for our Marquis mismatch. So although a number of runs will cross the plate at Coors, Marquez should join Paddock in producing some useful numbers this weekend. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the new wave in prospecting. So Prospect Palooza is over. Zillions of fab dollars doubtless paid out to acquire the likes of Keston Hura, Brendan Rogers, Nicky Lopez, and Willie Calhoun. Me, I spent half my fab in Tout American League on Calhoun. You may forward your congratulations to whatever hospital Willie's in these days after he strained a quad in his second game on my roster. And one of the things I like about playing in Tout Wars is the often innovative thinking that goes on. A year or two ago, Justin Mason really overloaded on starting pitching in the new head-to-head league because he saw a possible market inefficiency in the rules. Ron Chandler has road-tested some of his ideas in Tout and other experts' leagues. Steve Moyer used a near-Labadini heading-heavy strategy. And now there's a crafty idea in roster management and fabbing that is starting to bubble up. The idea is fabbing prospects after the auction or draft and during the season, but well before the prospect has been called up. I first saw this when Chris Liss grabbed a potential rising star more than a month before that player was called up in 2015. Many leagues, especially those operating strictly under the original rotisserie rules, don't allow fabbing players unless they're already on the big league team's 25-man roster. That is, unless they've been called up and activated. But under tout rules and in many other leagues, owners can fab anybody they like, with the provision that in mono leagues, AL or NL only, the player has to be on an affiliated minor league team to be eligible for fab. In tout, unlike, say, NFBC, the rules say that any fabbed player must be active for at least the full week after he is acquired before he can put on reserve. I tried this tactic this year by rostering Oscar Mercado, a young outfield prospect in the Cleveland organization, with a $1 fab bid while he was still in AAA. I first read about him in BaseballHQ.com's May 10 watch list column, in which our scouting analyst Alec Dopp wrote, and I quote, The most promising aspect of Mercado's game for fantasy purposes is his speed. He is a plus runner with a lean athletic build, which has helped him stockpile 209 stolen bases over seven pro seasons. After mentioning Mercado's solid outfield glove work and decent plate discipline, Dopp went on, and again I quote, This is the type of bat to stash in 15-team or AL-only formats, as he could have multi-category impact once he's promoted. As if that weren't enough, in his Market Pulse column, Brad Coleman called Mercado a weak-side platoon-type line-drive speedster. Line-drive speedster? 209 stolen bases? Hey, speed mattered to me, too, because stolen bases is shaping up in my league as one of the tightest categories, and a few extra bags could mean a big jump in points. So needless to say, I was intrigued. I checked on MinorLeagueBaseball.com, M-I-L-B, and Mercado's on-base percentage was around 350, and he was running a lot. 14 stolen bases, just three caught stealings, an 83% stolen base success ratio. 
I thought the on-base skills plus speed could help a Cleveland squad that was struggling to score runs. Cleveland already had a pile of outfielders, Leonis Martin, Bradley Zimmer, Greg Allen, Tyler Naquin, Carlos Gonzalez, and Jake Bowers, but that group had an aggregated OPS of 601, more likely to be recognized as the area code for central Mississippi than the OPS of a big league outfield core. The Cleveland outfield was out-OPSing Miami's outfield by just 25 points, and the Marlins are not making anyone forget the 75-76 Big Red Machine. With Mercado seemingly so far from the majors, I bid the minimum $1. Tout does allow $0 bids, but only for players who are on 25-man rosters. That was on Sunday, April 28th, and I got Mercado effective that Monday on April 29th. I put him on my roster in our swingman slot, another tout innovation that lets us use our 23rd roster slot for a 10th pitcher or a 14th hitter, and we can go back and forth. Fortunately, the slot was occupied at the time by Justin Bohr, and since Bohr was more of a swing-and-miss man than a swingman, all I would lose was a week of sub-600 OPS. Taking the zero in the slot might actually have helped, at least in on-base percentage. So I did take the zero for Mikado that first week, then I reserved him effective May 6th. Cleveland helpfully activated him on May 14th, the following Tuesday, which was very unhandy because it meant I would have to wait six more days to get him on my active roster and start accumulating. While he was languishing on my reserve, Mercado made me feel pretty good about my choice. He played in four games, he went three for nine with a couple of walks and a solo homer, and on the Sunday before I could activate him, I saw him easily steal second, only to overslide the bag and get called out. His OPS for the period, well over a thousand. I was excited. I activated Mercado effective Monday, May 20th, and he has since played three games, getting to the plate 12 times. He has only two hits, a 167 batting average, no walks, so a 167 on base percentage. He has no home runs, no runs scored, and two RBIs. His OPS in the three-game run has been 417, and he hasn't even tried to steal a base. But all of that is in the very short run. Cleveland believes in Mercado and Jordan Luplo enough to have released Carlos Gonzalez, as you heard about in the American League report earlier. This has caused Baseball HQ team analysts to bump Mercado's playing time by 45 percentage points. Tyler Naquin also suffered a calf injury, giving Mercado even more playing time opportunities. Since snagging Mercado, I've tried again with the new wave, speculating on Baltimore first base prospect Ryan Mountcastle, who was OPSing 876 at the time in AAA with 7 homers and 32 RBIs, and whose path seems relatively unblocked in Baltimore, where the only obstacle is Chris Davis, whom, somewhat ironically, I bought at this year's auction. I'm pretty sure that this kind of preemptive striking on near-ready fantasy prospects is going to increase in fantasy leagues whose rules allow it, because fantasy owners are starting to realize that big league clubs are getting much more aggressive in promoting their young prospects. Maybe the clubs are starting to think that the six-year low-cost structure is going to change in the next labor deal, so they might as well get their six years of benefits starting right now. They might be thinking... We can promote a kid at 555000 the minimum, and get just as much a nothing as we can get paying $3.5 million for a 31-year-old journeyman. Concerns about future salary structure would also explain why teams are suddenly being so generous signing first-year extensions, like Eloy Jimenez and Brandon Lau got this season. 
The early prospecting technique might be more playable in mono leagues where free agent pools are thinner than soup kitchen gravy and the opportunity costs of the lost week aren't too onerous. Losing a week of Justin Bohr's production in a 12-team American League only is not the same as losing a week of the typical 14th hitter in a 15-team mixed or especially a 12 or 10-team mixed. But make no mistake, more of these prospects are on the way. And by the way, the prospect Chris Liss speculated on back in 2015, a young shortstop named Carlos Correa, who played 99 games after he was called up in early June and provided Liss with 22 homers, 68 RBIs, 52 runs, 14 bags, and a 345 on on-base percentage, helping him to win the 2015 Tout American League title. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 23 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest from this Friday edition of the show, Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs, which you can find at Fangraphs. Mike is a top-notch analyst and a very successful fantasy player. And as you heard, he's a great guy for a conversation about fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, all one word, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. You could also do me a solid by telling your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Just the friends who actually play fantasy baseball, because the other ones tend to think we're kind of weird. And you could take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast or iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio, and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.